You're unmuted. Good afternoon and welcome to the regular board meeting of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for today, Tuesday, September 12th, 2023. Madam Clerk, could you please call the roll? Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Chan. Chan present, Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey present, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio present, Supervisor Mandelman. Present. Mandelman present, Supervisor Melgar. Melgar present, Supervisor Peskin. Present. Peskin present, Supervisor Preston. Preston present, Supervisor Ronan. Ronan present, Supervisor Safai. Safai present, Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie present, and Supervisor Walton. Walton present. Mr. President, all members are present. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatush Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Madam Clerk, do we have any communications? Yes, Mr. President. This meeting is airing live on SFGOV-TV's Channel 26, or you may view the live stream at www.sfgovtv.org. The public is welcome to attend this meeting in person in the board's legislative chamber here in City Hall, second floor, room 250. To participate remotely, the telephone number and the meeting ID are published on the agenda and streaming on your television or computer screen. If you do need assistance accessing this meeting, we have a clerk standing by for the duration of this meeting. Uh, you can come to room 244 or you can call 415-554-5184. We will have interpreters on hand to assist with general public comment and with the 3 p.m. special order. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And I would like to acknowledge that Mrs. Wilson's civic class, civics class from uh, Sacred Heart Cathedral Prep is here. Welcome to the Board of Supervisors Chambers. And with that, Madam Clerk, do we have approval of the meeting minutes before us? Yes, the July 18, July 25, 25th, 2023 Board Meeting Minutes. Okay, is there a motion to approve the minutes as presented, made by Supervisor Walton, seconded by Supervisor Preston, on that motion, a roll call, please. On the minutes, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, I, Supervisor Chan, Chan, I, and Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I, there are 11 eyes. 
The minutes will be approved as presented after public comment. Madam Clerk, why don't we go to our 2 p.m. special order appearance of the mayor. Yes, the uh, mayor is in our chamber, Honorable, Honorable Mayor London and Breed, to engage in a formal policy discussion with eligible board members. Prior to the discussion, the mayor may address the board for up to five minutes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Welcome, Mayor Breed. The floor is yours. Thank you, President Paskin, and hello, members of the Board of Supervisors and members of the public. Uh, today, I want to provide an update on where we are with our efforts to shut down open-air drug markets in the Tenderloin and the South of Market neighborhoods. Starting at the end of May, we increased our enforcement efforts in coordination with the state and federal law enforcement partners. This year, in the Tenderloin Police, the Police Tenderloin Police District alone. Officers have made 616 arrests for drug sales. Last year, that number was about 350 for the entire year. In that time, we have seized over 200 pounds of fentanyl with those arrests, two and a half times more than what was seized last year during the same period. Cal California Highway Patrol has made more than 100 additional drug arrests and has seized 40 pounds of fentanyl. And CalGuard is now expanding its efforts, bringing in more resources to help our police department with investigations. The Drug Enforcement Agency and the U.S. Attorney's Office are taking ca cases to federal court. Our district attorney has filed a record number of drug cases, 566 so far this year, more than we've seen in previous years. Rec and Park Rangers have been out patrolling UN Plaza to keep it clear of illegal vending. And we've done felony arrest warrants these, in, in these areas, pulling more than 120 people off our streets. Our work to shut down these drug markets also includes disrupting public drug use. That means making arrests. I know some people aren't comfortable with that, but we can't continue to let anything go on our streets. We're offering many services on a regular basis. For example, during August, our public health street care team, just one of the many teams that are out there focused on the Tenderloin and South of Market neighborhoods, interacting with approximately 300 people. Some accept it, but let's be honest, most did not. Only seven people accepted mental health support, eight accepted substance treatment, and our staff is continuing to work hard when people are ready. We have to strengthen our laws to compel more people into treatment, and I appreciate the majority of this board led by Supervisor Mandelman and supporting SB 43 by State Senator Susan Eggman. But changes like SB 43 won't solve everything, and it certainly won't solve the situation where people feel they can use drugs openly on our streets without any consequences. We can't accept that. People can criticize this approach all they want, that's fine, but what's the alternative? It's easy to criticize, but where is your solution to the problem? We are already sending wave after wave of outreach worker. We have completely reformed our street response team. We have added 350 treatment beds, and we're supporting efforts at the state level to fund even more. It can't just be resources. And those who support safe consumption sites have to realize that any effort to deliver these sites 
must be paired with a commitment to ending public drug use on our streets. That means aggressive enforcement of drug use and drug sales in the surrounding area to keep it safe and clean. We're going to hold people accountable who are breaking the law and creating chaos, and we're going to continue to help those who are in need. This is our approach, and I will not deviate from it. I'm working with our police chief, Bill Scott, our Sheriff Paul Miyamoto, our district attorney, Brooke Jenkins. I'm working with our governor, Gavin Newsom, who has provided additional services with our California Highway Patrol. And I want to also recognize and appreciate Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi and so many others. These are leaders who aren't just talking about what we need to do and criticizing on the sidelines, but they are actually delivering resources and support. We are listening to the residents, the merchants, the immigrant families who are begging us for help and to remove the politics out of the decisions that we make and to make sure that they, in their neighborhood is just as safe and secure as any other neighborhood in San Francisco. We are listening to the small business owners and the tenants who have organized and are trying to be part of the solution. And I know several of you have expressed your full support and have provided recommendations around solutions, including Supervisor Dorsey, who represents most of the area. But we all need to recognize that we can't continue to stand to the sidelines, be critical, without offering realistic solutions. We have to improve the lives of the people living and working in the Tenderloin and south of market areas today. We have to make this neighborhood safer and healthier for everyone, and we have to keep pushing on the progress that we've made. And again, I am not giving up or deviating from my commitment to do everything I can every single day to address this very challenging crisis in these particular neighborhoods of San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor Breed. And before I pose a question, let me acknowledge a former member of this body, a former assembly member and a former state constitutional officer, Kevin Shelley. Thank you for being in the board chambers today and welcome. Uh, and colleagues, uh, earlier today I sent a memorandum to the mayor that actually posed uh, the question last week. I said public safety and today I honed that and I just want to start out by uh, reminding us uh, what has gone on in the spring. Uh, there were calls, including a call from the supervisor for standing up a emergency command center uh, that played out in our uh, question time at United Nations Plaza. And uh, earlier this summer, the mayor did uh, just that, uh, which I welcomed and publicly commended. Um, and that's now, we're three months into that, and we are reading uh, in various news articles and releases by uh, the administration uh, as to what has been happening. And I, I want to use, I said at that time that I wanted to continue to use this as a forum to uh, publicly let everybody know that this is at the top of our list of concerns uh, and that we are having uh, meaningful dialogue. And so what I asked the mayor today was to update this board uh, as to the direction she is giving to the command center, what federal and state resources are confirmed. Uh, and as many of you know and was covered uh, in the press, I believe, today, the um, structure of the command center has changed with DEM, the Department of Emergency Management, sorry, I should not speak in initials, uh, leaving and the police department taking over that. 
uh, and I think we should all hear an update on that. And then finally, uh, one thing that I think is very important is that we all see what metrics we are using, what those numbers are, what we define as success. Uh, we did in COVID, um, and having uh, a regularly updated uh, dashboard that uh, shows how we are me measuring progress, whether it is pounds of drugs seized, whether it's arrests made, uh, we can argue about whether or not we should be concentrating on drug users or drug dealers, but let's get the metrics up. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it back over to the mayor. Thank you, uh, President Peskin. And let me just say that the metrics in terms of the dashboard uh, is currently um, being uh, set up. And as you know, uh, if we were running San Francisco like a business instead of a bureaucracy, it would already be online by now. Um, but we do have to go through the appropriate city processes in order to set up the dashboard. We have to make sure um, that the information that we have is, is accurate um, before we provide that information to the public, and we've done so. And we have no control over when the California Highway Patrol or the Drug Enforcement Agency decides when they want this information to be provided to the public. But fortunately, they have been working hand-in-hand -hand with us as a partner so that when that information is available, as I have done in press releases and information that I've shared with the board, I will immediately make that public until we have the ability to um, allow for this dashboard to be open and available to the public. Um, I appreciate your willingness to work with us and to partner with us to address this issue. Um, I know it's been challenging and frustrating, but let's just kind of take it back a tad bit. I mean, San Francisco, this problem is not a uh, an issue that's unique to San Francisco. Other cities all over this country are grappling with very challenging times as it relates to the significant increase of drug use from specifically opioids. Fentanyl has been one of the most devastating drugs we've ever encountered, and, and uh, methamphetamines are still on the table here. Uh, and, and many of the major cities of this state and actually small rural towns too are, are grappling with this issue. And this is why it is so important that as a, on a local level, we're doing all that we can, but our state and federal partners have got to step up, which in some cases from the enforcement agencies, we've get, we're getting that support, but the solutions as it relates to major changes to our laws in order to, from my perspective, force or compel people into treatment um, which is, again, controversial but necessary, is, is, is something that is really missing. Uh, and my hope is that with all of the great things that we appear to be doing here, um, that we will begin to start to see some changes. We know we have a, far, a long way to go. This is, this is not a, a problem that was created overnight and a solution, um, and some of the solutions that we're proposing and implementing as we speak are not gonna happen overnight. But my hope is that we will work together, um, even when we disagree on what the solutions are, in order to get the city of San Francisco to a better place. And I am hopefully optimistic that that will happen sooner rather than later. Thank you, Mayor Breed. And just to drill down into the change in the leadership of the command center going from DEM to PD, is there anything you wanna share and what direction you're giving? Well, the direction that we are giving is partnership. And the partnership stems from the law enforcement agencies working with the resources that are available specifically through the Department of Public Health. We are tired of the finger being pointed at who is not doing what. 
and bringing all of these agencies with a representative, you know, from Health and Human Services, from the Homeless Department, from Department of Public Health, from all of these agencies with law enforcement to really talk about a holistic solution is long overdue and what's needed. And the fact that they are at the table all day, every week, and there's a representative even from the Department of Public Works has been really, I think, beneficial and allowed us to really make sure that, for example, if someone is arrested for public intoxication, um, Jail Health, which is run through the Department of Public Health, is the entity by which resources are provided to allow for not just the opportunity after the arrest, but what happens when they're released. They need to know that they have a place to go or resources at any time in order to get healthy, in order to get the support that they need. So being able to make sure that these things are working in partnership and it's not my organization, my program, my department. We, have, we don't have the luxury to work like that um, as has been done in the past. And what we're seeing is great collaboration between our partners, even though it's been an adjustment to try and get people to work together. Um, and, and when I say work together, everyone has a different supervisor and boss, and not to mention the lengthy bureaucratic process of approvals for things and items. I, I mean, if, if you want to be helpful, I would say that we would need some major adjustments to our policies and our procedures, um, our procurement um, options and things that make it difficult for us to move faster. During the pandemic, San Francisco was a leader because we had an emergency declaration and we were able to go around all these lengthy, unnecessary processes that exist in order to get the job done. If we want to get the job done faster, we need to remove bureaucracy at every level to be as effective as I know uh, we can be as a city. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and I know that many members of this board are working on various admin code provisions, but we are always happy to partner with you, and if you have a follow-up question for me or any of my colleagues, the floor is yours. Thank you. Not at this time. Thank you, Madam Mayor. That will conclude question time today. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next month, uh, and this matter is concluded. And with that, Madam Clerk, could you please go to the unfinished business item number two through four. Items two through four called together. These items are settlement of lawsuits. Item two is the ordinance to authorize the settlement of a lawsuit uh, for approximately 229 million against Walgreens Company. This item is for the improper and unlawful dispensing of prescription opioids at its pharmacies. Item three. This is an ordinance to authorize the settlement of the lawsuit filed uh, against Cephalon Inc. and Teva Pharmaceuticals USA and related entities for approximately $24.8 million uh, involving the uh, false and misleading marketing of opioids. And for item four, this settlement uh, was filed uh, against Allergen Finance LLC for approximately $12.9 million again, for falsely and misleading marketing of op opioids. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Seeing no names on the roster, we will take those items. Same house, same call. The ordinances are finally passed. 
Madam Clerk, next item, please. Item five, this is an ordinance to amend the administrative code to exempt payments received by housed participants in guaranteed income pilot programs from the Humane Service Agency's determinations regarding the participants' eligibility for the county adult assistance programs and the amount of aid the participants may receive. Same house, same call. The ordinance is passed on first reading. Next item. Item six, this is an ordinance to authorize the execution and delivery of certificates of participation in one or more series on a tax-exempt or taxable basis, uh, evidencing and representing an aggregate principal amount of $77 million to finance and refinance certain capital improvement projects within the city, additionally to approve multiple agreements, notices, and forms herein. Same house, same call. The ordinance is passed on first reading. Next item. Item seven, this is a resolution to authorize and approve the lease approximately of 400 square feet of the city-owned radio equipment room and one antenna at 125 Christmas Tree Point, also known as Twin Peaks Boulevard, with the State of California General Services Agency for the California Highway Patrol for an initial amount of 9000 and a 4% term of 10 years with five, two five-year options to renew. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 8. This is a resolution to authorize a lease with the State of California for the Recreation and Park Department to operate a property commonly known as Assessor's Parcel Block Number 5331, Lot Number 056, located under Highway 280 along Selby Street, between Quesada Avenue and Palu Avenue for an initial term of 10 years with uh, three five-year options and a base rent of 2000 and to adopt the appropriate uh, findings. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 9, this is a resolution to approve a maintenance agreement with the California Department of Transportation, Installation, and Maintenance of Transportation, ART, uh, located at the southwest corner of 17th Street and San Bruno Avenue and the southwest corner of 17th Street and Vermont Street for the Petrero Gateway Public Art Project and the city to an indemnify Caltrans for any claims occurring by reason of anything done or omitted to be done by the city under this agreement. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 10, this is a resolution to approve the Director of Public Works Declaration of Emergency for Repair Work at Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center uh, estimated to cost in excess of 250000 but not to exceed $28.4 million. Same house. Uh, oh, Mr. no, excuse me, Supervisor yeah. Melgar, my apologies. That's okay. Thank you, President Peskin. I, I was not able to attend uh, the Budget Committee hearing on this, and I wanted to make sure that I uh, was on the record, uh, first of all, thanking the chair of the committee uh, for working this out quickly um, and putting in the work to make sure that the um, language was what it should have been, but also to thank Interim Director Carla Short for the heavy lifting on this. Um, this money is for doing a bunch of the physical work that needs to happen at Laguna Honda for us to be in compliance with our contract uh, with CMS and met, uh, you know, for and 
eventually Medicare as well. Uh, it needs to be done and it needs to be done quickly. And so uh, this was a way uh, for DPW to help the Department of Public Health to get this done. Um, and I'm, again, uh, grateful to the DPW uh, Interim Director Short and to um, Chair Chan for making this happen. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar. Seeing no other names on the roster, now we will take this same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 11, this is a resolution to retroactively authorize the Department on the Status of Women to accept and expend a grant from the Blue Shield California Foundation in an amount of $150,000 for a one-year grant, April 1st, 2023 through March 31st, 2024, for the Leveraging Collaboratives to End Domestic Violence Program. Supervisor Stephanie. I'd like to be added as a co-sponsor. Okay. It shall be noted. Seeing no other names on the roster with Supervisor Stephanie as a co-sponsor, same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 12, this is a resolution to authorize the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission to accept and expand grant funds of up to approximately 500000 from the California Department of Water Resources for the pipeline construction of the San Francisco Zoo Recycled Water Project through December 31st, 2024. Supervisor Melgar. I just need to be added as a co-sponsor, please. It Thank shall you. be noted, and on item 12, with Supervisor Melgar as a co-sponsor, same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 13, this is a resolution exempting from the competitive bidding policy the potential real estate transaction involving port property at Seawall Lot 300 and 301 and Pier 45 with the Fisherman's Wharf Revitalized LLC for development of a mixed-use property and to urge port staff to take all actions needed to negotiate an exclusive negotiating agreement and a term sheet with the Fisherman Wharf uh, Re Revitalized LLC on a sole source basis consistent with this resolution. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I want to uh, thank the Budget and Finance Committee for hearing this last week and thank the Port for their presentation and uh, reiterate what the Port's presentation set forth, which was that this was done pursuant to a request for interest. Uh, we're in other interest in this potential project. Uh, we're not forthcoming, uh, a mini RFP, if you will. Uh, and to note that the term sheet, uh, if and when negotiated, is subject to future approval by this Board of Supervisors. Seeing no other names on the roster, we will take this same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 14 was referred without recommendation from the Budget and Finance Committee. Item 14 is a resolution to authorize the Recreation and Park Department to issue a permit for another Planet Entertainment LLC to hold a ticketed concert at the Golden Gate Park Polo Field on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday following the Outside Lands Festival in 2024, 2025, and 2026 in exchange for a minimum permit fee of $1.4 million per year for a two-day event and a $2.1 million for a three-day event for a three-year term to commence in 2024 and a commitment to hold three free musical concerts per year for each year in which the concerts are held at the polo fields and to affirm the CEQA determination and to make the appropriate findings. Supervisor Chan. 
Thank you, um, President Peskin. Colleagues, I just want to uh, take a moment to explain why this uh, item came out of committee without recommendation. I also wanted to flag for you that uh, Vice Chair Mandelman on the committee, as well as Supervisor Safai, actually co-sponsor um, to this item, um, and I myself uh, have reservation. Um, it's precisely with that um, that this is the reason why this item came out of committee without recommendation, because um, First of all, I, I do recognize the benefits of these concerts bringing to our overall city budget and the vitality the additional concerts would bring to our downtown areas. And I appreciate the work that um, everyone, uh, including Recreation and Park Department, as well as another planet entertainment uh, and some of our um, union partners uh, that have come to the table to improve the original proposal to what it is before us today. Um, it is for that reason, I do not plan to delay or derail this project and these benefits. But I do want to say on behalf of the Richmond District, as their representative, I continue to have serious concerns that the departments doesn't really have a plan to address the concerns that our West Side residents, uh, particularly the Richmond uh, constituents, um, about how they time and time again have raised regarding events like the Polo Field concerts, um, outside land, even Hartley Strictly Bluegrass, how it actually closed off large swaths of our park for weeks at a time um, for these events. Um, although there have been some mitigation for the impact on our neighborhoods, let's also be honest that these came as a result of years of complaints and the efforts of my predecessors in order to get them in place. Um, so I think that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, and I look forward to continue to working with the department uh, and other planning entertainment to really make sure that we improve upon these mitigation plan. Um, again, um, because of that, you know, I, I just want to iterate the type of impact it has on the Richmond. It's about residential parking availability, north-south road access, noise monitoring control, crowd nuisance uh, mitigations, um, including like vandalism, limiting closure durations and impact on wildlife habitat. Those are real concerns, um, but those are real concerns for the Richmond. Um, they're probably very, very different from your constituents and how they view about these concerts. Maybe most of them actually enjoy them and come and come to the West Side to, um, to participate. So they are uniquely the Richmond's concern. Um, so with that, uh, I w regrettably, I will have to vote no on this item uh, as for the Richmond uh, representative. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Seeing no other names on the roster, Madam Clerk, a roll call, please. On item 14, Supervisor Engardio. Aye. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Aye. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Chan, no. And Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. There are 10 ayes and one no with Supervisor Chan voting no. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, let's go to our special order 230 commendations. 
Yes, I believe that Supervisor Ronan is the first and only individual for that. Thank you, President Peskin. Um, and I would like to ask Sheree Johnson, uh, the mother of Devon Han, to come up and, and stand at the mic. Please come forward. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ms. Johnson. Uh, please bear with us, colleagues. This is going to be a hard one. Um, today, I am making a posthumous uh, award on behalf of Devon Han, uh, the son of Sheree Johnson, uh, who's going to accept this award on her son's behalf. On July 8, 2019, while walking with a friend on 24th Street in the Mission, 15-year-old Devon Han, Devon Han was shot and killed. His killer, who recently admitted to this crime, is being sentenced shortly, but I'll speak more about that in a moment. First, I want to talk about Devon. Devon was magical. He was one of those people who was born from his mother with the gift of making anyone he came in contact with feel good. It was like he walked around with a celestial shine surrounding him. He had an infectious smile and always gave big hugs to everyone he saw. Devon grew up in poverty, but you wouldn't have known it. He walked around with a self-confidence and a maturity beyond his years. He was popular. Everyone loved him. He spent time on all, his po all the positive opportunities that were afforded him, sports, basketball, baseball, football being his favorites, music, he loved rap, Bible study, black college prep, volunteering in his community. He rolled with United Players and constantly gave back, feeding the hungry and helping people in need. Davon was a good friend. He believed in his friends and he helped them to engage in the positive just like he did. Devon was taken from his family way too young, 15 years old. He wasn't just another statistic. He was a beautiful person with a bright future. Even after he was shot and until he took his very last breath, he was concerned about his friends and those around him, making sure that they were okay. Devon left a legacy at only 15 years old. This is something so many of us who have had the privilege of growing old don't often get to claim to leave a legacy as bright as the one that he left. We are remembering Devon today and giving him this official honor at the Board of Supervisors because the pain of his loss remains acute. It's been four years, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like it just happened. We want to remember him and remember his beautiful face and his light always. Devon's mother, Sheree, will, who will accept his honor, this honor on behalf of her son, and say a few words shortly, is suffering beyond belief. It's been over four years, and the pain continues to be unbearable. Sheree's living children and the memory of her beautiful boy are what keep her going. Before we hear from Sheree, I want to apologize to her. I want to apologize to Devon. I want to apologize to Devon's community 
and the rest of Devon's friends and family. When I met Sheree after Devon's death, I immediately saw why her son was so incredible, because she is as well. I mourned the passing of Devon alongside her. I helped paint a mural in his honor, and I helped Sheree find new housing to keep her other son safe. In an awful twist of events, the man who later admitted to killing Devon was someone I had previously tried to help. This man also advocated at City Hall and hugged Sheree at a press conference that we all attended after he killed her son. In our jobs, we try so hard to help everyone that asks for our help, but I have, should have done so much more research and I should have done so much more due diligence before I unknowingly wrote a letter on behalf of this man. That letter that I wrote hurt Sheree even more than she already hurt, the last thing in the entire world that I ever wanted to do. And my actions made her distrust government even more. So I want to deeply, deeply apologize to you, Sheree, and I wanted to do it publicly um, because I hate seeing you hurt anymore uh, from the loss of your son and, and, from the, and from my actions. I have learned so much from this experience. I've learned so much from you. Um, and to this day, Devon is helping me grow and learn through your continued advocacy, Sheree. In closing, Devon, Devon, in your short life, you have and you continue to shine. Sheree has established a scholarship fund through United Players to help other young folks who grew up in poverty attend college since Devon couldn't fulfill that dream himself. I ask you colleagues and the public watching this to join me in making a donation to this fund by donating to United Players online or, or sending a check and indicating that the donation is specifically for the Devon Han Scholarship Fund. And now, Sheree, um, if you'd like to say anything, we'd love to hear from you. I appreciate your kind words, Ms. Ronan. I miss my son. I hate the fact that he didn't get to live life and experience college. He didn't get to go to prom. He just didn't get to grow and get the life that he deserved. I won't let his name die. I won't let his spirit die. The reason I'm here today is not only to stand up and to speak out for my son, but to hold everyone accountable that was involved with Davon's murder. The person who pulled the trigger, yes, he put the bullets in the gun. But the reason this meeting, or I asked Ms. Ronan to publicly apologize is because there was negligence. There, not only negligence, I feel we were let down. We weren't protected. The support that was given was flawed. At times, my family and I have had to struggle mentally, emotionally with Devon's loss 
and trying to figure out everything. But to find out as I go through a murder case with my son that the same people that, who were sent to help us were also assisting the killer on being free broke my heart. When the San Francisco police came to tell me that they found the murderer, his first words were, I'm sorry, but if city officials wouldn't have helped, we would have been got him. My son being the fourth victim, headlines is, uh, headlines is mentor by day, killer by night, hitting the examiner, the front pages. When it comes down to it, he had the leeway and the support of the system to be able to navigate to commit these things. I appreciate you because we've talked hours, and even though I know you purposely did not try to do anything wrong towards my family, I really ask as if more can be done as far as looking into cases. When my son was killed, being the fourth victim, this person actively had cases in San Francisco with SFPD and was still on the payroll of the San Francisco mayor's office. When it comes down to it, I can't change what happened, but I can make everybody aware of what happened. I lose sleep behind not knowing if I'm safe, if my family is safe. I see this man's face hugging me at my most vulnerable moments. But I will not let Davon down. I won't let my other kids down. And I'm here to hold everybody accountable. I have been seeking counsel towards San Francisco to open a claim off of the negligence that has been done. But no amount of money, sorry not to be rude, but not even an apology, will bring back my baby. I appreciate it, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Johnson. This is Davon. Our condolences. Madam Clerk, could you please go to item 19, committee reports? Yes, items 19 through 22 were considered by the Homelessness and Behavioral Health Select Committee at a regular meeting on Friday. September 8th, 2023, and were forwarded as committee reports. Item 19 is a resolution to approve the Third Amendment to the grant agreement between the Homeless Prenatal Program and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for homelessness prevention assistance to extend the grant term by 45 months for a, a new total term through June 30th, 2027 to increase the agreement amount by approximately 13.5 million for a new amount 
of 23.4 million and to authorize the uh, HSH to enter into additions, amendments uh, of, of this agreement that do not increase the obligations or liabilities to the city. On item 19, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Chan, aye. And Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, aye. There are 11 ayes. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 20, this is a resolution to approve the first amendment to the grant agreement between Brilliant Corners and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for housing uh, a location and rental assistance for young adults in rapid rehousing to extend the grant term by 24 months for a new total term through June 30th, 2026, and to increase the agreement amount by approximately 17.4 million for a new amount of 27.3 million and to authorize HSH to uh, amend and modify the agreement without increasing obligations or liabilities of the city. Same house, same call, the resolution is adopted. Next item. Item 21, this is a resolution to approve the second amendment to the grant agreement between the Tenderloin Housing Clinic, Inc. and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for master lease stewardship, property management, and support service at 16 permanent supportive housing sites to extend the grant term by 24 months uh, for, through June 30th, 2026, and to increase the agreement amount by 108 million for a new amount of 241.6 million. Seeing no names on the roster, same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Next item, please. Item 22, this is a resolution to approve the second amendment to a grant agreement between five keys schools and programs and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing for shelter and support services at the Bayshore Navigation Center to extend the grant term by 33 months, now through June 30th, 2026, and to increase the agreement amount by 15 million for a new amount of 25 million. Same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, let's go to roll call for introduction, starting with Supervisor Engardio. Submit. Thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, no worries, Supervisor Safai. Colleagues, uh, as I have said before, if it seems like there isn't any traffic enforcement in San Francisco, that's because there largely isn't. We know this, our constituents know this, and it drives them up a wall, especially when inevitably contrasted with the city's extraordinarily reliable, not to say aggressive, parking enforcement. I've held and participated in more hearings on the topic than I care to remember during uh, my five years in this job, but at the most recent one, last 
October, at least the most recent hearing on, tra on the traffic enforcement piece of this, we highlighted data showing that SFPD was only issuing 10 traffic citations per day in 2022 compared to uh, 350 per day in 2014. That's a 97% decline in traffic citations between 2014 and 2022. And unsurprisingly, perhaps 2022 also saw the most traffic fatalities in the city since 2007. In May, I sent a letter of inquiry to the police department asking that they describe in writing the reasons for the decline in traffic enforcement over the last decade and present us with a plan to reverse it with a focus on those violations most likely to lead uh, to pedestrian injury or death. We've received a response from the de department uh, and I wanna thank uh, Chair Stephanie for making time on the September 28th Public Safety and Neighborhood Services for a continuation of last October's traffic enforcement hearing where we'll be digging into the substance of the department's response. My letter of inquiry asked the police department to describe the barriers and challenges to restoring traffic enforcement to 2014 levels, including but not limited to overall staffing challenges as well as policy and legal changes at the state and local level that may have contributed to the decline in enforcement. The letter also asked SFPD for a plan um, to increase traffic, uh, traffic enforcement to 2014 levels with an, an emphasis on focus on the five violations. Probably unsurprisingly, SFPD's response uh, pointed primarily to the department's severe staffing shortage to explain the decline in traffic enforcement over the last decade, and the response concedes that traffic stops were deprioritized during the pandemic. But the department's response also highlights changes in law and policy at, state and, at the state and local levels that have added to the administrative burden associated with each traffic stop. According to the department's response, once you include the time an officer spends on administrative paperwork and processing, even the simplest traffic stop can take between 20 and 25 minutes compared to just a couple of minutes only a decade ago. What the response does not include is the plan we asked for to, res to restore traffic enforcement to 2014 levels. Now, to be fair, the department had signaled to us prior to our submission of the letter that they were not sure they would be able to give us what we were asking for. Instead, the response highlights the department's move to so-called directed operations in which officers are deployed to specific locations to focus on specific driving behaviors, which the department suggests may make our streets safer without necessarily requiring a citation for each stop. I'm grateful for the department's response, but it does raise a number of further questions for me. Can directed operations ever be pursued in a way that measurably restores traffic enforcement as a credible deterrent for drivers in San Francisco? And how does the department propose that we measure that? Are there ways to relieve the department of some of the administrative burdens that have so dramatically reduced the efficiency of traffic enforcement efforts without fundamentally compromising the department's reform successes? And given a staffing shortage that even the most optimistic under the most optimistic scenarios will take years to resolve, how can this board help ensure that traffic enforcement gets its fair share of scarce resources? With 39 lives lost to traffic crashes last year, we simply cannot continue to shortchange this important public safety priority. I wanna thank Chief Scott, Traffic Company Commander Peter Walsh, and the department's board liaison, Diana Oliva Orochi for their partnership in helping us think through these issues and the rest I submit. Thank you. And Supervisor Mandelman, I believe that is now Commander Nicole Jones. That's what happens when you have a lot of command staff <laughs> churn. <laughs> Fair point. All right, Supervisor Melgar. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, Today, colleagues, I am introducing a resolution uh, on Armenian Independence Day. 
uh, along with President Peskin, uh, commemorating the 32nd anniversary of Armenian independence on September 21st. Armenian was uh, invaded in 1920, which led to a 70-year oppressive uh, Soviet rule over the Armenian people. But on September 21st of 1990, the people of Armenia overwhelmingly voted on a referendum to declare the Republic of Armenia an independent country after the Supreme Council adopted the Declaration of Sovereignty for Armenian, procla proclaiming the Armenian um, you know, Soviet Republic abolished. Um, it is significant today, colleagues, um, because you know many Armenian Americans in the San Francisco Bay Area are direct descendants of survivors of the 1915 Armenian genocide, the legacy of which continues to reverberate in the ongoing threats faced by the Armenian people in their ancestral lands. Um, and it is significant today because um, there is a recent struggle for security and sovereignty um, in the majority ethnic Armenian population of the territory of Artsakh in the face of Azerbaijani aggression. Armenian Artsakh continue to face a threat to their security with Azerbaijan illegally occupying significant portions of Armenian sovereign territory and enforcing an illegal blockade against the uh, indigenous Armenian population, which has led to lots of hardship, um, starvation, uh, aggression, violence against uh, peaceful people. We want to send a message of solidarity um, to the people, people of Armenian uh, in Artsakh and to commemorate the September 21st as a 32nd anniversary of Armenian Independence Day. As we take a stand on this humanitarian issue, the Armenian community is strong and resilient here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And if you are all free this weekend, I welcome you to attend the 66th annual Armenian Food Festival at the KZV Armenian School um, in District 7 at 825 Brotherhood Way. Um, the rest I submit. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Melgar. Uh, Supervisor Peskin. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, I would like to adjourn today's board meeting in the memory of a beloved uh, North Beach neighborhood icon and character, Peter DeLuca. Uh, who was a lifelong resident, um, and Peter would re readily reminisce about his uh, 80 years of memories and evolution of the neighborhood he called home, including attending the actual original opening of City Lights Bookstore. Uh, he was born in 1940 at his family's North Beach house. Peter's first job was at his aunt's restaurant, the original Rose Pistola's, uh, which was then located at 1707 Powell Street. At the age of eight, he helped out in the kitchen. At the age of 12, believe it or not, he started tending bar. In the years that followed, Peter worked at a number of neighborhood establishments, including Powell's Bar and Grill, the Wash Bag, the, also known as the Washington Square Bar and Grill, uh, and uh, Cafe Zoetrope, where he tended bar for over a decade. Uh, aside from a couple of detours to Australia and Fiji, Peter's home base was always his beloved North Beach. He was a proud member of the Bayview Boat Club and the Clampers and a fan of Emperor Norton's, and he continued to keep up with his Galileo classmates for monthly 
luncheons to the end, our condolences to his grieving widow, Ga widow Galen and his North Beach community at Specs and around the neighborhood. The rest I will submit. Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Preston. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Ronan. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Uh, I have one item today, uh, colleagues. Um, I'm submitting a letter of inquiry to our city attorney, uh, David Chu, to investigate <clears throat> what are called limited services pregnancy centers, uh, also known as crisis pregnancy centers, and enforce administrative code chapter 93, which protects the rights to reproductive freedom in San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco has a robust network of facilities that provide pregnancy-related services that are truly comprehensive and high-quality. Uh, limited services pregnancy centers, on the contrary, are harmful and threaten the reproductive freedom uh, that is defining value of our city. Um, rather than providing a full range of reproductive health options, including uh, pregnancy guidance and termination, emergency contraception, uh, these centers often deceive people uh, into believing that they are offering the full range of options while seeking to counsel patients against uh, their right to an abortion. Uh, the Board of Supervisors passed Ordinance 212-11 to prohibit limited services pregnancy centers from making false or misleading statements to the public about pregnancy-related uh, services the centers offers or perform. Uh, I recently became aware of a misleading clinic operating in District 11. Uh, with this letter, I'm requesting that our city attorney take swift action uh, to investigate and enforce administrative provisions uh, in Code Chapter 93. And with that, uh, colleagues, uh, the only other thing I would add is, uh, Madam Clerk, please add me as a co-sponsor to Armenian Independence Day uh, that Supervisor Noted. Melgar introduced today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, today I'm introducing legislation that will represent a significant step towards building a more transparent and accountable government that delivers high-quality services to our residents. My legislation will enhance transparency, accountability, and the overall effectiveness of San Francisco's contracted nonprofits. Currently, San Francisco spends over $1.7 billion on contracts with over 600 nonprofits. These organizations are expected to provide a wide range of services, including health services, early education programs, family support services, and aid for homelessness and housing issues. Until now, the city's lack of uniform guidelines for these contracts has far too often resulted in waste, redundancy, and abuse. My legislation will centralize responsibility with the city controller to establish standardized performance criteria and requirements ensuring measurable objectives. It will also strengthen a corrective action policy for nonprofit contractors to ensure adherence to city funding guidelines, bolster accountability, and ensure reliable service delivery. Right now, the status quo benefits no one. The city ineffectively measures CBO's work and the process for reporting and remedying concerns about underperformance remains unclear. Many nonprofit service providers have also voiced concerns about the city's onerous, ambiguous, and inconsistent compliance requirements. During a hearing I held earlier this year, one provider reported that her organization had received 28 distinct site visits over the course of just a few months because the provider holds 28 separate contracts with the city. Most importantly, residents, as you know, and I'm sure you've seen your emails, 
are frustrated as ever by the scandals that continue to be reported on in the press and the lack of visible progress on our most pressing challenges despite billions in city spending. As San Francisco tackles economic challenges and rising dissatisfaction with local governance, we must ensure that CBOs are run efficiently and effectively with a focus on delivering, again, measurable results. I would like to thank Deputy City Attorney Kate Kimberlin with the City Attorney's Office for all of her incredible work on this. And I also want to thank City Controller Ben Rosenfield and Laura, Laura Marshall on his team for the remarkable work on this legislation and for the tons of meetings we've had. I asked the City Attorney to draft this bill after the Controller's Office published a report in August of last year detailing many recommendations that this ordinance will seek to codify. I also want to thank Debbie Lerman with the San Francisco Human Services Network, whose input was invaluable, and all of the nonprofit providers we met with over the last few months. And finally, I want to thank Dominica Donovan in my office, who's been a champion of this and has worked very hard on it with all the nonprofits and our controller. I look forward to your support as this legislation goes through the process. Thank you. The rest I submit. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Supervisor Walton. Submit, thank you. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, today I'm submitting an in memoria um, to remember uh, James Wing Chow of the Richmond District who passed away peacefully on August 30th, 2023 at the fine age of 102. Mr. Chow was a proud yet modest man who believed in and exemplified the virtue of self-reliance, self-respect, hard work, loyalty to family, um, reading, uh, study and higher education, gumption, thrift, and respect and kindness for his fellow human beings. Mr. Chow was born in 1921 in San Jose and was a graduate of Galileo High School and Chengwan Chinese Central High School. Mr. Chow served his country in World War II as a ship fitter in the U.S. Naval Shipyards at Hunter's Point and Mirror Island, and later owned and operated four small businesses in San Francisco and Oakland, the Fashion Center, Senai White Laundromat, Friendly Food Market, and Jim's Egg Distributor. He retired from distributing at age at young age of 90, along with his late wife, Arlene May Gong, whom he met while attending City College of San Francisco. Uh, James raised three children, his daughter Stephanie, son Christopher, and stepdaughter Lisa in San Francisco neighborhoods of Chinatown and the Richmond District. He lived a very long and successful life that exceeded his hopes and dreams as well as those of his father and grandfather who preceded him in America. His only son, Christopher, broke a color line in Bay Area broadcasting by becoming the first Asian American hired as an on-air television news reporter in San Francisco, KPIX, CBS 5, in 1970. On his 100th birthday, I was honored to proclaim May 12, 2021, James W. Day throughout San Francisco. And on that day, when we ended the board meeting, I was able to visit him um, at his home in the Richmond. And imagine during the, the pandemic, he, I was going to meet him at the steps of his home, but he welcomed me inside. 
Um, he asked me to sit with him, and I did. And um, he was amazing. Um, on his 100th birthday, he gave me the words of encouragement, recognizing the hardship that Asian American community face in San Francisco, even 100 years later, um, since his lifetime um, at that time, that he understood um, and was proud. And, and with his own words, he said he was proud that to have me as his district supervisor and representing him from the Richmond. So for that, I am just so grateful for who he was and his family, and definitely um, will remember him uh, for years to come. Thank, and the rest I submit. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Chan. Last but not least, Supervisor Dorsey. Submit. submit. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Why don't we go to our special order 3 p.m.? If you could read items 15 through 18 together. Yes, items 15 through 18 comprise the hearing of persons interested in the determination of exemption from environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act, issued as a categorical exemption by the Planning Department on June 29, 2023 for the proposed project at 939 Lombard Street to demolish an existing two-car parking structure towards the front of the lot and to construct a new 5,173-square-foot single-family dwelling with a residential mixed low-density zoning and 40X height and bulk district. Item 16 is the motion to affirm the uh, Planning Department's determination that the proposed Lombard Street project is categorically exempt from environmental review. Item 17 is the motion to conditionally reverse the department's exemption determination subject to the adoption of written findings. And item 18 is the motion to direct the preparation of findings. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Colleagues, we have before us a hearing on the appeal of the determination of exemption from environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act for the proposed project at 939 Lombard Street to demolish an existing two-car parking structure and construct a new single-family dwelling. Uh, after the hearing, the board will vote on whether to affirm or conditionally reverse the determination. Uh, unless there is any objection, we'll proceed as we normally do as follows. Up to 10 minutes for a presentation by the appellant or their representative, followed by public comment, uh, not to exceed two minutes per speaker in support of the appeal. Uh, then we'll go to the planning department for their presentation not to exceed 10 minutes, and then up to 10 minutes for the real party in interest, the project sponsor, uh, and that will be followed by two minutes in support of uh, the project sponsor, in other words, in opposition to the appeal, and then finally the appellant or their representative will have up to three minutes for rebuttal, and seeing no names on the roster, I will take that as no objections to our normal procedures, and we will begin the public hearing as indicated. The hearing is now open. Mr. Eng, the floor is yours. Uh, uh, honorable uh, supervisors and all those in presence, uh, I, I come before you because as a concerned citizen, and for common sense within the framework of our laws, so particularly the California, 
the environmental quality act or CEQA. The school is a very important asset, uh, important uh, asset, more valuable and important than a recreation center, like the Betty Ng uh, and uh, Recreation Center. There are no, no young kids or kindergarten kids playing at the uh, recreation center, but the school right next to the new construction site has many uh, kindergarten children, four years old, and uh, they need the uh, protection from the, I think it's a needless uh, a new construction. We appreciate the governor and San Francisco agreed on 82,000 new units in the next 10 years, but it must make common sense and conforming. 939 lumbar permit must be stopped, and it's too dangerous to build anything at all. There have been no site uh, with two big houses on there, and there's already a $5 million house in the back, and they a lot of greeneries, and then you have to uproot and uh, and ruin the uh, integrity of the soil is on a steep hill. If it's ever built, it will hurt the image of San Francisco. The house in the back is historical, leaving almost no open space in the middle of, of the lot. With the monster 5,200 square feet house, 46 feet high, uh, right, right next to the school with no barrier, sharing the same uh, retaining wall. There are also free uh, uh, grantee restrictions to build uh, on, this, uh, on this lot, and it can still cloud the grantee title. This project would take away financing and skilled labor resources away from the affordable housing. So this thing is going to sell for us about at least 10 million, so it's, not, it's no way it's affordable. It's not going to help the San Francisco housing shortage, and it will hurt the income for the long run for the city. The long shadow will no doubt cause health problems permanently for the children especially. Many past buyers, owners of this property with the existing house said they won't build anything in the front. The garden is the main attraction. Russian Hill neighbors usually oppose any kind of development, but this time I guess with new guards and many of them have passed away. So some of them uh, are against it, but they didn't spend the time or the money. The, spectac uh, the, the developer is a speculator. He's not going to live there, and he's not living there now. I think he could go bankrupt, plus being sued by the children who will suffer cancer, asthma, lung disease, mental retardation, proven by many studies, lead could lead to low IQ. Developer filed in the building application say he's going to build 200 square feet for 750,000. That is impossible. It is a fraud against the city to cheat on the permit fees. It should cost at least $3 million to build this house and upward to $7 million if they want to build it like City Hall. Um, it is not a project for affordable housing. These two houses must be sold together and there's no way going to help the city tax revenue because it probably won't be built or difficult to be sold. I have never seen two huge expensive houses are so close to each other on a tiny narrow lot. And one so close to a school, none in, in, in the world I have, have I seen one. Um, I want to sh uh, show the, some slide. Can you turn it on? The, uh, okay. So this is the school here. See how big the, the school is? If it's 
the construction is going to render this school would be noisy and nerve-wracking because you can hear for a mile any hammering and drilling. Uh, uh, two blocks away, people think, you know, they, they're right next to you. Uh, so this school is a very valuable, it's a special education school, got autistic kids. And, you know, this is half a block below the world famous uh, Lombard Street. We got, what, 50 to 80 million uh, tourists, but I don't know, but so majority of them want to come to San Francisco, drive down, or walk down, and take pictures. And I, 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 I overheard them tourists were laughing and when they look in the picture post on the door, what an ugly house in a nice block. And uh, Cafe Greco owner also complained, but um, and they, they, are, they are living right across the street and, and they say this is an ugly monster and it's going to block. <laughs> they going to be, have, to be, have to look at it, uh, look at it if, if it's ever built. Um, see how imposing is 40 feet and plus uh, another six feet for the uh, rooftop is uh, it could, uh, you know, if, if there's an earthquake or flood, it, is happening uh, right now all over the world. The building has been tumbling down. And it's going to be a shadow, and it's going to wipe out uh, a, a lot of uh, habitat and the, the integrity. And look at the playground, how big it is. If they ever do construction, I wouldn't want my kids go to school there. And, and, um, and also, that see how that retaining wall? They're going to build right next to it. And then there's a garage in the, in the, and there's a $5 million house in the back. So this thing, whole thing going to be $10 million. And no, who's going to buy it? And it's going to be sit there. It might go bankrupt. And, uh, and, you know, the homeless could climb in. It's just like 100 people climbing the San Francisco Art Institute every week. Um, see, see the house in, in the back, uh, right in between, next to the school? And there are a lot of tourists. When the tourists walking down the hill, they didn't know there was construction. They're going to be jaywalking. And someone might get hit by a car. That happens a few times. And uh, hit a tree or whatever. And, and so there will, be, there will be a lot of jaywalking uh, in, in the street. And, it, and we've got millions of tourists. And they're going to see all this. And, and look at how many people use the playground you know, after school. And they have kids. Uh, you know, weekends and events, and they also go to Town High Community Center, so keep them off the street so they won't commit crimes. And, and uh, recently, we have this uh, construction by PG&E, and the school principal told me, oh, yeah, of course they're all against uh, the new construction, but because the, they try to claim there isn't because the parents are too busy. And so the, um, the construction from PG&E has already drives the school crazy already. Uh, and then also, when you do construction, double park and the parents and competing with the de delivery. Okay, I'd like to turn this over to, uh, to Ms. Falkenstein. Uh, she, she knows this much and better. Thank you. Um, I would like to show a photo, if possible. Um, switch from computer to photo. Is that possible? Yes, just put it on the overhead to your right. Okay. Right here. Is that, is that proper? It will pop up uh, for us in did just that a work? second. Did that work at all? One moment. <laughs> okay, thank you. Adam Clerk, the overhead. 
Hi, dear esteemed supervisors and commissioners, I am here today on behalf of the Yikwo community to appeal the exemption status of 939 Lombard and request a full environmental impact report. The proposed 5,000 square foot, four story, single family home puts the health and safety of the 200 plus students and staff of Yikawal Elementary School at risk. We have five key environmental concerns as well as construction related concerns. Number one, landslide risk. The project sponsor's own geotechnical evaluation in October 2022 noted that this area is a landslide risk zone. The proposed building will require the removal of bedrock and mature trees, which will further compromise the stability of the hillside. This evaluation was not based on the architectural drawings or square footage. It was completed four, after four years of historic drought. Landslides are not a theoretical concern in this neighborhood. A landslide occurred one block away this very winter. Seismic hazard. The current retaining wall of the schoolyard will be insufficient to support a structure of this mass. Instead, a dozen piers will need to be drilled 20 to 25 feet into the ground. This drilling will further destabilize the hillside. The piers themselves will be incredibly disruptive, both noisy and vibrate the ground. Ground contaminants. By drilling so deeply into the soil, there's a risk of all the toxins from the soil being exposed into the air. The geotechnical study did not actually conclude a, re a review of the contaminants below the surface and only a cursory review of the surface contaminants. Is that one minute? Nope, you have 30 seconds left and we get 30 seconds. seconds. <laughs> shadows, um, shadows 15 to 20% across the large tree removal. In addition, we have concerns about the noise, hazards, and traffic, keeping in mind that we already have taxpayer-funded police officers on Lombard Street trying to conduct the traffic, um, and this will be built in a zone uh, where it is hard. We are, and so as a Yikwo parents, we are not saying do not build anything. We understand there is an affordable housing crisis. This mega mansion will not help that. In addition, it exploits the current zoning regulation for an individual's financial gain. And I just show you here the trees and all the things that will be removed from our neighborhood and will impact our school children. We really have to care about the families of San Francisco. And I and it's, it's hard. <laughs> this is meeting is in the middle of our school drop off pickup time. Thank you, Ms. Falkenstein. Um, Okay, seeing no names on the roster from my colleagues, uh, why don't we go to speakers on behalf of the appellant, not to exceed two minutes per speaker. Go ahead. I'm actually on the side of the, can I have just two minutes of hearing time or? You are for the project sponsor or for the appellant? For the school. You to yes, you this okay. is the time for you to speak. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Anna Bilstrom. I am a resident homeowner in North Beach, and my son is in fourth grade at Yikwo. Stephanie told me about this project. I was very concerned. The other day, I asked my son, I said, When you play in the playground, are you in the sun or the shade? And he said, The sun. So, I would like anybody here who's an SF resident who cares about whether our city is for families and for children to thrive in a healthy environment to think about that. And I understand it's a private residence, but I own a residence. And I, if I bought a lot next to school, I would think I would have to live cooperatively with my neighbors. And this is future generations of 200 kids. It just seems like a kind of a no-brainer here. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other speakers 
on behalf of the appellant in opposition to the project. Are there any remote speakers for the appellant, Madam Clerk? All right, we have any callers in the queue? Mr. Lamb? We have one caller in the queue. Welcome caller, please join us. Hi, uh, can you all hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Okay, uh, good afternoon members of the Board of Supervisors. My daughter attends Ikuho Elementary, which is uh, adjacent to this property. So my commitment to the well-being of the children in our community is, is very personal. Um, I'm here to respectfully request that you consider reversing the exemption determination of the environmental review. Um, given this project location right next to our public school, which serves a diverse student population where one out of three children are learning English, and nearly half of the student body comes from low-income households, um, which I think makes it imperative that we thoroughly evaluate the potential impact. Um, I understand that the project does meet code, um, but I believe that the potential impacts on our community, particularly our children, uh, their safety and their education warrant careful consideration. Uh, first and foremost, I would like to emphasize the importance of safety for our children especially those who face unique challenges. Uh, the proximity of this project to a public school with such a diverse student body demands, in my opinion, a thorough evaluation of its potential effects on the children, traffic, pedestrian safety, and overall neighborhood dynamics. Um, more, moreover, I think it's crucial to consider the potential impact on the learning environment. Um, any construction project near a school can lead to noise, dust, and disruptions that can disproportionately affect students' ability to concentrate, especially those facing educational and socioeconomic disparities, uh, exacerbating the challenges faced by a school district already struggling with behavioral and mental health issues. So in conclusion, I believe you know, that reversing the exemption determination is not about opposition to development, um, but about responsible and thoughtful urban planning that takes into account the unique circumstances and needs of our neighborhood, especially our diverse and vulnerable student population. So hoping we can work together uh, to make sure the voices and concerns of our community, especially those of our children, are heard and considered in this decision-making process. So thanks for your attention and, uh, and, and commitment to this matter. Thank you. Are there any other speakers remotely for the appellant? There are three more, Mr. President. Mr. Lamb, let's hear from our next caller, please. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hello. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Natasha Babayan. I'm a local resident. I've been a parent of Yikwu for 11 years. I'm also the gardening teacher there. Um, Yikwu has been uh, in its location with its yard undisturbed for 40 years. For 40 years, it has served neighborhood children, um, providing a diverse education to a diverse uh, student body. Our students are fortunate in that we have an outdoor education program which we worked very hard um, to create. Those classes take place outdoors. They take place outdoors on the yard and in our garden. Um, those, our garden and the plantings that we've worked so hard uh, to build over seven years would be seriously impacted by both dust and the lack of sun. Uh, these are city children. I'm raising city children like everyone on this call. It's imperative that our students have the opportunity to be outdoors safely seeing how food grows, um, eating food that they have grown, experiencing the sunlight. Um, this this um, enormous uh, single-family home would disturb something that has been in place for 40 years and provides education and safety to 250 students a year. That includes two large classrooms 
of special needs children who are nonverbal, uh, nonverbal and especially sensitive to noise. So this would be seriously disruptive to the health and safety and um, development of our students who are so fortunate to have an outdoor education program. So few schools in our city do. So um, I hope that you'll consider these comments in support of the safety and health and well-being of neighborhood children. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Let's hear from our next caller, please. Hi, this is Sabir. I'm a parent at Jiquo. Uh, my concerns are twofold. One is seismic. We're talking about drilling a dozen holes or so, which doesn't inspire confidence. It's going to impact our hillside. We've already had a landslide on Leavenworth a block away. The contaminant study was flawed. It only looked at the surface contaminants and does not address what happens underneath. And to points of gardening, it has an impact on soil for years, if not decades to come. My second concern is around shadow. I believe this study was not done fully or responsibly. It included a time frame at 12 p.m. when there was no shadow. At 2 p.m. it was about a 20% shadow, but our school goes to 3.30. That's when our kids are, all the kids are in the yard. And my concern is the shadow will likely be about double at that point, which really takes into account their well-being in fall and winter. Sunlight is not just essential for light, but it's also essential for mood and our behavioral health. Um, and this is not even talking about our big artistic program at Yukwil. My question is, this developer is not part of our community. They're here to make a quick buck and move on. So if and when something goes wrong, who will we hold responsible? Who will you hold responsible? Thank you. Thank you for your comments. All right, let's hear from our next caller, please, on behalf of the appellant. Um, hi, my name is Messiah Wah. My daughter, Milana, goes to Yikwu. Um, I don't really have anything to add other than that I am here to support the speakers against this project. Um, I'm very concerned about uh, contaminants in landslide, um, the noise, the blocking of the sunlight from our children's schoolyard, all for personal greed and gain of one person or a few people. Uh, Yikwu is a very special school. Uh, we have a lot that we have to be concerned about, like lack of teachers, lack of social workers, and then on top of it, where this, this project could make everything much worse. So I really, really hope that you're listening to the people I've showed up against it today. Thank you for your comments. Let's hear from our next caller, please. Yes, hello, my name is Colin Stewart. Uh, my son, Lucas, uh, just started kindergarten at Yik Wo. And I, I cannot imagine the impact that, that this project will have on the students of Yikwo. The construction, the noise, the dust, the nonverbal special needs children that attend. Um, I, I just, I, I cannot fathom the drilling of piles and the amount of shadow this will cause, cast uh, on the, uh, on the yard. Um, I, I, at this point, I'm, I'm not sure if my son will even be able to stay at Yekwo. Um, and we have such a strong, such an amazing parent community there. And I'm just in incredibly disappointed that this, some giant mega mansion is going to be built literally right next to 
the school for the gain of one for developers and the needs of 250 children are just cast aside. Um, I, I, I strongly, you know, hope that you consider the needs of the children in this community and, and, and put a stop to this project. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. All right, let's hear from our next caller, please. Madam Clerk, there was the last call in the queue. Thank you, Mr. Lamb. Mr. President. Let me just confirm that there are no other speakers in these chambers on behalf of the appellant. On behalf of the appellant on 939, Lombard. Looks like there's one, Mr. President. Go ahead, sir. Yes, we protect the children no matter what. So anything that can interfere with their happiness, they are enough. Besides, remember, the, the children are going to be the one watching you going back to your own school, the school that you are paying for to learn what beauty is. The, the, you need the children to watch you do it, right? So all these facilities you are building around San Francisco, mainly, you think it's called a biolabs. No, it's going to be the school you are paying for your own school. That's what is going to happen. Pay attention. I'll say that later. Anyway, we protect the kids. End of the story. Seeing no other members of the public on behalf of the appellant, this portion of the hearing is closed, and now we will go. <clears throat> uh, now we'll go to the planning department, Ms. Gibson. Good afternoon, uh, President Peskin, members of the Board of Supervisors. I'm Don Lewis from the Planning Department. Joining me today is Joanne Abrete, the Project Supervisor, and Lisa Gibson, the Environmental Review Officer. Madam Clerk, could we please go to my slides? So the item before you is the appeal of a Class 1 and 3 categorical exemption issued by the Planning Department for the 939 Lombard Street Project pursuant to the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA. After the Planning Department provided its appeal response on September 1st, the appellant submitted two supplemental appeal letters. The Department has reviewed these letters and determined they do not provide any new information that changes the conclusion of the Department's September 1st appeal response. We maintain our position that the appellant has not met the legal burden of proof to successfully challenge the CADEX. In my presentation, I will highlight some of our main arguments in response to the appeal. But first, I want to acknowledge the testimony today from from the speakers who are concerned about the potential impacts of the project. These issues have been addressed in our appeal response. And now a quick overview of the project. The project site is located in the Russian Hill neighborhood on the block bounded by Lumbar, Jones, Greenwich, and Leavenworth streets. It is in an RM1 zoning district and a 40X height and bulk district. The project site is occupied by an existing three-story single-family residence at the rear and a two-car parking structure located at the front. Immediately east of the project site is the Yikwo Alternative Elementary School. Immediately west of the project site is the appellant's property. The project sponsor proposes the demolition of the garage structure and construction of a four-story single-family residence. The proposed building complies with the planning code, the general plan, and the residential design guidelines. You've heard the appellant's arguments, and I won't repeat them. At a high level, our responses are as follows. First, the project meets the definition of a class one and three categorical exemption. Second, no exceptions to the issuance of a CADEX apply, including what's called the unusual circumstances exception. 
Next, even if the project were to present unusual circumstances, it would not have significant impacts, including those related to geology, shadow, construction noise and air quality, biological resources, aesthetics, and public safety. The CEQA guidelines establish classes of projects that by definition are exempt from environmental review. Class one allows for the demolition of, a gar of garages and carports, and class three allows for the construction of up to three single family residences. The project clearly fits within the class one and three categorical exemption. The CEQA guidelines also establish exceptions to the issuance of a CADEX. One of these exceptions where the project presents an unusual circumstance that gives rise to a significant effect. The appellant makes several arguments asserting that the project would have significant environmental impact, impacts. In the interest of time, I will address a few regarding construction impacts. Construction is, is expected to take up to 12 months total, with the proposed structure being erected and exterior finished in about 14 weeks. The project would be subject to the dust control ordinance. There are well-established best practices for managing dust during construction, typically some combination of water and barrier measures. The project sponsor's construction contractor would be required to use these measures in order to minimize dust from construction. Construction noise could be perceived as an annoyance to the students and teachers of the school, as well as to nearby neighbors, but noise from construction of an infill single-family residential home in the urban setting of San Francisco would not constitute an unusual circumstance. The project construction would be temporary in nature and would not include pile driving or excessive amount of excavation. The project's construction will not cause the school to close and will not preclude the use of the outdoor area. Additionally, there are stringent permitting regulations and requirements related to the coordination of construction activities with various city agencies to ensure the minimum feasible level of disruption to circulation on public right-of-way and public safety. Regarding geology, construction on steep slopes is common in San Francisco. Even if such construction were unusual, the building department's permit review process includes provisions for construction on hillsides and would ensure the project's structural integrity during construction and operations. Shared retaining walls are also a common feature in San Francisco where homes are often constructed on steep slopes. The, appell the appellant presents no facts on how the project's retention of the existing retaining wall would be a potential hazard to safety and stability of the school building and grounds. Regarding shadow, the proposed 40-foot tall building is not subject to the planning code section 295, which requires a shadow analysis for the construction of new buildings above 40 feet in height that would cast new shadows on properties under the jurisdiction of the Recreation and Parks Department. There are no Section 295 protected parks or site within the vicinity, and Yukwu Elementary School is not part of the Shared Schoolyards Program. The school is not a public open space. 40-foot tall buildings are common in San Francisco, and the shadows cast by buildings of this height are not significant, which is not to say that they are not undesirable. Regarding hazardous materials, the project site is not in the Maha area since it is not located in an area with current or historical industrial use or zoning or within 100 feet of a current or historical underground tank. Based on a review of historic sandboard maps, the project site has always been residential. The appellant has provided no substantial evidence to support the argument that hazardous materials could result in a significant impact on the environment resulting from an unusual circumstance. For these reasons, no significant impacts would occur in these topic areas, period, not just in relation to unusual circumstances. In conclusion, 
The department has uh, substantial evidence to support the determination that the project qualifies for class one and three categorical exemption and the appellant's arguments do not meet their legal burden of proof to demonstrate otherwise. Thus, there's no basis for requiring preparation of a mitigated negative declaration or environmental impact report. Therefore, we ask that you uphold the class one and three categorical exemption and deny the appeal. That uh, concludes my presentation. We welcome any questions the board may have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lewis. Ms. Navaretti, anything you want to add? Ms. Gibson, anything you wish to add? Thank you for elucidating Section 395 of the Planning Code as it relates to Rec and Park properties and Proposition K. With that, why don't we go to the real party in interest or their representative for not to exceed 10 minutes? Ms. Sullivan. Good afternoon, President Peskin, Supervisors. I'm Tara Sullivan from Ruben Junius and Rose on behalf of the project sponsor, who is also the owner of 939 Lombard Street. The project sponsor is seeking to demolish a 500-square-foot carport at the front property line and construct a new single-family residence that will be 40 feet in height. The property is 137 feet deep by 27 feet wide, and it has a single-family house at the rear of the property. After completion, the property will feature a two-home lot with a code-compliant shared rear yard of 34 feet. The issue before you today is whether or not a Class 1 and Class 3 categorical exemption issued by Planning Department on April 19th is supported by substantial evidence. The CADEX was appealed by the owner of the neighboring property at 953 Lombard Street. The appellant has not offered any substantial evidence to challenge the department's determination that warrants overturning the categorical exemption. And it is clear that the appellant's goal is to protect his private views by opposing any future development at this property. The appeal request should be denied and the CADEX should be upheld because there are no unusual circumstances that would result in significant impacts and preclude this project from a categorical exemption. The appellant has not provided any substantial evidence in support of his CEQA claims. Rather, the appeal consists of generalized statements and unsubstantiated claims about project impacts related to geotech, noise, dust, fumes, traffic, and habitat loss. He has not provided evidence, any evidence showing that there are unusual circumstances here that warrant additional environmental review. Aesthetics are not a CEQA issue. Many issues raised by the appellant in his brief, such as neighborhood character and aesthetics, are not CEQA issues to be considered under this appeal. The Planning Commission considered these issues at their June 27th discretionary review hearing and determined that this project complies with the general plan, the planning code, and the residential design guidelines. It is important to note that the adjacent Yikawo Elementary School has not filed an appeal for this project, and the appellant, multiple appellants, are not representatives of the school. While much of the appellant's arguments focus on the alleged impacts that the project would have to the school, the school itself has voiced no formal objection to the project. Turning back to the appeal, as the department stated, the project qualifies for a class one and a class three exemption. Class one exemption is for small demolition of small structures such as the carport at the front of the property, and the class three exemption is used for the construction of small structures such as a single family house. Here, because it's a residential zone district, single family house, that, that exemption applies. A categorical exemption may not be used on a project if there is a reasonable possibility of significant environmental effects due to unusual circumstances. In order to prove that an unusual circumstance exists, the challenger must demonstrate two things. That there are one, one that there are unusual circumstances that distinguish this project from others in the exempt class, and that there is a fair argument that a project will have significant environmental impacts due to these unusual circumstances. The second question is only considered if, there's a substantial, if there is substantial evidence to counter the department's determination that no unusual circumstances apply to the project. 
Again, I'd like to emphasize that the key issue here is whether there are unusual circumstances at this property. The appellant must present substantial evidence in support of a fair argument that there is a reasonable possibility that the project will have an environmental impact due to the circum unusual circumstances. And substantial evidence under CEQA law requires actual facts and expert opinions, not simply speculation and unsubstantiated opinion. Again, the appellant has not provided any substantial evidence that there are unusual circumstances in this case. There are no facts backed up by written reports, expert testimony, or evidentiary documents showing that there are unusual circumstances sufficient to overturn this CADEX. One feature of the property that the appellant has focused on is its proximity to the adjacent Yikuo Elementary School, and that both properties are located on steeply sloping lots. These, in fact, are not unusual circumstances in San Francisco. As planning department's brief states, there are 14 other public elementary schools that share similar characteristics. They are located on steeply sloping lots in residential areas. The Yikwo Elementary School is a 30,000 square foot parcel with expansive frontages on both Lombard Street, 137 feet deep, and Jones Streets, 211 feet. Two of its facades front large streets, not adjacent development, with its outdoor facilities, the gym and the playground fronting Jones and Lombard. The, the part of the school um, that fronts our subject property is actually a blacktop, not the play structures themselves, which are located at the corner. The appellant claims that the conditions between the Yikwo school and the property make the property unsuitable for development. Specifically, the appellant raises concerns about a shared retaining wall, arguing that it cannot handle the weight of this proposed new building. The project includes drilled piers that will extend 15 feet below the bottom of this retaining wall. The weight of the new house will be supported on these piers, and any resulting surcharge, i.e. horizontal load, will occur below the bottom of the retaining wall. Further, the development will actually ease the soil pressure currently imposed on the retaining wall because of these piers, which are going to take much of the load of the building. All of this has been detailed and analyzed in the geotechnical report from October 2022. So these new piers will actually improve the conditions between the two properties by decreasing the amount of load that is shared in this retaining wall. The retaining wall and related low impacts are not an unusual feature of development in San Francisco and do not rise to the level of an unusual circumstance as required by CEQA. Further, the site's topography does not present any unusual circumstances. The slope is not unusual. It's 25%. The property is subject to the Slope and Seismic Hazard Zone Protection Act, which approximately, according to planning, 38% of the properties in San Francisco are subject to this Protection Act. As such, the project will undergo vigorous review by DBI, which may require a third-party peer review of all structural issues. Lastly, the project's potential for seismic activity is not an unusual circumstance, as all properties within the city and Bay Area are subject to potential seismic activities and have code reg regulations related to them. The city and state's building codes appropriately address all geotechnical considerations, which the project is subject to. There are simply no unusual circumstances related to geotechnical issues under CEQA. The project also does not present any unusual circumstances as it relates to shadow impacts. The property is subject to a 40-foot height limit, and the proposed building is 40 feet in height. As such, it is not subject to a shadow study under, under CEQA. Further, it's not subject to review under Planning Code 295 since the Yikwo School is not owned by Reckon Park and there are no other Reckon Park properties in the vicinity. Nonetheless, the, a high-level shadow analysis was prepared, which showed that the project would add incremental shadow to the northwest corner of the schoolyard in the summer and fall, starting in the late afternoon. By 5.30 p.m., even under the existing conditions, the schoolyard is almost completely shaded. 
The uphill slope of this block of Lombard means that there is quite a bit of shadow on the downslope schoolyard, regardless of what type of project ultimately is built on this lot. Again, the project calls for the development of a 40-foot structure in the middle of an urban area. As planning mentioned in their brief, there are 14 other elementary schools located in urban areas with similar conditions. The fact that the project will cast some incremental shadow onto the Yikwo Elementary School blacktop will not be, is not an unusual circumstance to warrant additional environmental review. Regarding the other issues raised by the appellant, construction noise, air quality, and hazardous materials, no significant evidence has been presented to show that there are unusual circumstances that could cause significant impacts related to those topics. The city has robust regulations that addresses all of these issues through the regular review and approval of building permits. A few examples that this project is subject to are the following. Health Code Article 22B, which is a dust control ordinance for construction and dust and fumes. The Police Code Article 29 for both construction equipment noise during construction as well as for general noise limits post-construction. SFMTA's regulations for working in SF streets, the blue book for construction work that impacts streets and sidewalks. DPW uh, section 724 for temporary occupation of the right of way during construction. Also um, OSHA lead construction standards and uh, construction requirements will apply as well. In summary, the appellant has not provided any substantial evidence. There is no facts, reports, expert testimony that the project or project has unusual circumstances that distinguish it from other similar projects in the area. The appellant's stated goal in his brief is to block any future development of the property, as he repeatedly states. It is not a CEQA concern, but rather one related to the appellant's desire to protect his views, which are not protected by CEQA or the planning code. The project sponsor has made several modifications to this project, including a five-foot setback at the fourth floor and the removal of rooftop, stair, and elevator penthouse. He, is a resident, he was a resident of the property for several years, and he has a vested interest in this neighborhood. This project will not have a significant impact under CEQA. Based on the lack of evidence presented by the appellant, the appeal should be denied and the CADEX upheld. The department correctly concluded the project is eligible for categorical exemption and that there are no unusual circumstances that would result in a significant environmental impact. We respectfully request that the categorical exemption be upheld. I'm here with the project architect, the project owner, um, and we are happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Sullivan. Are there any questions for the project sponsor or their representative, supervisor, and guardio? Yeah, I have a question for the planning uh, department. Uh, you had a, is there a way to sh show your slides again? There was one slide I wanted to look at. It was the slide that showed a picture, I think, of the appellant's house with a rendering of the, of the uh, new construction next door. And Supervisor Ingardi, you, you're, there's also uh, in yeah. the planning department's response on page uh, 9 and 10 as it relates to shadow uh, information in the record as to the shadow that is already created by the extant four-story residential building that is owned by the appellant that is set forth on page 9. Oh, great, but that, that slide was, that's the one I wanted to look at. Can we look at that slide? So the question is for planning. So is that the appellant's house to the right of that rendering? Yes, that's correct. It's is a, there any difference in the height or, or square footage of those two properties? I think the proposed building is slightly larger, but it's, they're both four stories. They're both uh, 40 feet tall, I believe. I mean, very similar. Okay. Especially, yeah, same. And, you know, if you keep going up Lombard Street there, it's, it's very similar. 
Okay, I, I just want to take one more look at that. Thanks. Thank you, Supervisor Angardio. Thank you, Ms. Navaretti, for bringing that slide up. Are there any other questions from members of the Board of Supervisors? Seeing none, we will go to speakers on behalf of the real party in interest, the project sponsor, not to exceed two minutes. Seeing nobody coming up to the microphone, are there any remote speakers for the project sponsor against the appeal? Mr. Lamb? Any callers in the queue against the appeal? Welcome, caller. Um, hi, I'm calling. My name is Vadim Bedrovnik. I'm an architect here in San Francisco, and I actually have two kids that go to Equal. I'm calling in support of this project and actually see this as an opportunity for the kids at the school to see firsthand what it takes to build something from the ground up. It can teach a lot of valuable lessons to all of our kids. Um, it teaches how difficult and long anything worth doing actually takes and also spark the curiosity of young minds with questions like, is that what a building actually is made out of? Uh, buildings, uh, building anything, especially in San Francisco, it takes a long time. Most of these kids will be in high school by the time this project ever gets built. I mean, if you take a look at uh, Salesforce Tower, the architect Cesar Pelli, he had to live to the young age of 92 just to see it get built. And that was over a decade after they won the uh, design competition for that project. And I don't see anybody protesting the billion dollar shadow that it has left over San Francisco. So there, there really aren't any quick bucks uh, when dealing with construction projects, uh, as some people may claim. Um, I, I'm also wondering why, why don't we make this new building a part of the new enrichment program at Yikwo? Maybe call it building technology. It's actually a gift that we have this next door. And, um, you know, someone much wiser than me once said that if you want to build the build this big, build this, build the biggest building in town, send, say that 10 times fast, you do it by building the biggest building in town and not by knocking down someone else's building. If the concern is lack of multifamily and affordable housing, let's get that built as well. Not instead of this project. Let's not knock down this future building before a shovel hits the ground, but rather embrace the change and the progress that it will bring. Thank you for your comments. All right, Mr. Lamb, let's hear from our next caller, if there is one in the queue. Madam Clerk, that was the last caller in the queue. Thank you. Mr. President. Okay, public comment uh, in support of the project sponsor is closed, and we will go to a not-to-exceed three-minute rebuttal to the appellant. Hello, uh, again, uh, taking a different microphone this time, mixing it up. Um, Stephanie Falkenstein, I am reaching out. Um, first, I really want to speak on behalf that the Yukwo community did not file an appeal. Um, you have heard about the diverse population that exists of Yikwo with one of three students learning English, two additional classrooms of special needs children who are nonverbal. We don't have the money. We can't even afford a full-time social worker at our school. I can't, as the chair of the SSC, responsibly say that we can use money to hire experts for testimony, hire lawyers, file a CEQA appeal. That would be completely irresponsible of me when I am focused on student outcomes and doing the best I can to reach student outcomes today. 
Um, I have also heard that there are 14 other elementary schools on slopes. I went through the list that planning provided, school by school. The difference in those schools is they may be on a slope, but there is not a building that is sitting on top of their retaining wall. Schools like Mira Loma are at the top of the hill. That is a very different circumstance when you have a situation where you have bedrock, which has been known to crumble in our very neighborhood, and sitting a yard just below it where school children play. That is another piece that I did not hear at all. I know that there is code, I know that there are specifics, but my understanding of CEQA is it really is also about the community and the actual impacts on the community. And I think that is what makes this situation unique and special. Um, we, I, not, I've heard many times about this drilling of the peers and how great that's going to be, but all I can think of is the noise and the disruption um, to the students and to the staff. Um, I really respectfully ask that you consider the needs of the families and children, the one who do not have the big budgets to hire lawyers and get expert testimony. That is why we are asking not to quash the project, but to do a full environmental review that understands the traffic situation, the noise, the air. That's all we're asking. We're just asking for a little bit more than the minimum, the bare minimum that planning would do and tossing us down the road to the DBI, which is currently under investigation by the FBI. That is not of any comfort to parents that we're going to be pushed over to that department. Um, finally, we'd just like to say the other buildings that were mentioned were built over 100 years ago. Um, this is the only lot that would be sharing a retraining wall with the school. Um, I do ask you to consider the needs of children, and I do say do not understand how the noise, air, and dust will enable the children to miss, you know, not miss any time outside that they so desperately need. Thank you so much for your consideration. Um, appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Okay, we will now close the public hearing and we will file item 15, Supervisor Dorsey. Thank you, President. Thank you, President Peskin. I'm curious, I have a question for the appellant is if it's okay. Um, there was a moment I think where it was stated or there was a representation that it's this project and not, it's not, it's this particular project that is the issue and that you're not against development there. But in the appeal letter it says that no, I'm reading this verbatim, no new development is the only way for the environmental conservation and community well-being. So it's, it should, it is, is which is it? Sorry, please come forward. Yes, um, I think that the initial appeal and the money to, to put the appeal forward stemmed from Martin Ng. Um, after discussions, we had discussions after that appeal was filed, um, and he decided to reflect the views of the community, um, the Yikwo community, that is, um, because he's been very open to that and agree that something potentially more suitable could actually be built there um, and not necessarily something that was of such a mass. Um, and if that mass... It does not, you know, have the impacts, right? We go through the environmental review and impacts are not, not what we think they may be. We're okay with that, but we just want to ensure that there's a fine tooth comb um, because this is our children, um, the health and safety of our children, which is at risk. Well, if it break ground, I mean, uh, you know, you're gonna go through the whole construction 
and drilling down is going to break up the integrity. It's not going to help. Never. Uh, any earthquake flood will. Uh, so at least we got to get an environmental, then we can decide. But but I, I think killing a project is actually helping the developer. I don't think he's going to make it. And so he's going to hurt his own values, the house in the back. Who's going to buy it? Yeah, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Seeing no further questions from members of the Board of Supervisors, uh, we will now consider whether to affirm or conditionally reverse the, the exemption determination made by the planning department and seeing no other names on the roster and having reviewed the file, uh, I would uh, concur with planning department staff with respect to the appellant and supporters of the appellant uh, that the categorical exemption has been correctly applied and while I am president and would need to come down to make a motion, I would welcome a motion to affirm the CEQA determination, approve item 16 and table item 17 and 18. Motion made by Supervisor Mandelman. Is there a second for that motion? Seconded by Supervisor Preston. On that motion, Madam Clerk, a roll call, please. On the motion to approve item 16 and table items 17 and 18, Supervisor Engardio. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. Melgar, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safayi. Safayi, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Aye. Stephanie, aye. Supervisor Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Chan. Chan, I, and Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I. There are 11 ayes. Item 16 is approved, and items, items 17 and 18 are tabled. Madam Clerk, could you please go to general public comment? At this time, the board will hear general public comment. During this uh, public comment, you may speak on the mayoral appearance, the approval of the minutes as presented earlier in the meeting, and items 25 through 32. These are the items under the adoption without committee reference calendar. In addition to other general matters that are not on today's agenda but, but must be within the board's subject matter jurisdiction, uh, all other agenda content will have been reported out to the board by an appropriate committee where the public comment requirement occurred. We do have interpreters. They know to jump in and to assist speakers with their public comment. And, Mr. President, pursuant to Title II of the Americans with Disability Act, through a prior arrangement, we have an individual who has requested to make his public comment by telephone first. And so I know my staff are ready to uh, have that individual make his public comment uh, before the speaker's in the room. So um, let's hear from that uh, caller, please. Mr. Manette Shaw, not to exceed two minutes. The floor is yours. Thank you. I'm submitting today results of 1,600 signatures initially collected during a change.org online petition drive. It's addressed to the Board of Supervisors President Aaron Peskin and Health Commission President Daniel Bernal. The signatures include 410, 25% from San Franciscans and our neighbors in the greater Bay Area. Please display the handout on the over projector now. 570 signatures, or 
came from all California jurisdictions, demonstrating broad community support to save Laguna Honda from 120 vets. The document I just submitted via email to each member of the Board of Suits includes compelling online comments posted on change.org. The petition remains open on change.org for those who still want to sign it, shown on the overhead display. Laguna Honda Acting CEO Roland Pickens told the Board of Supervisors on May 9th there is a waiver process and CMS and CDTH are open to the waiver. Pickens is confident Laguna Honda meets those waiver requirements. The Board of Suits should direct Laguna Honda to immediately submit its waiver request directly to CDTH Director Tomas Erogan. It's time you take this overdue action in this board's oversight of Laguna Honda role. Thank you, Mr. President. We will go to in-person public comment in the board chambers. First speaker, please. Hi. Again, I will for the first time tomorrow morning speak to the fire guys. Okay, so I'm asking you now to uh, prepare yourself because it's going to be difficult to deal with. Something is coming unavoidable now. Just prepare yourself, just work towards the objective, which is happiness for everybody. After that, it's going to be great, but there is something coming, I know it. The sky are blue, that, uh, the skies are blue, they tell me, I know. So just one thing I remind you, you can't play with fire. It's that water, you don't mess with it either. And basically, you don't play with the four elements. So you don't play with air and winds too, because it stimulates the fire, right? So that's no good. So something is coming. I know it for a very simple reason because I pay attention to the city. So if the freeway is blue under, I mean, see, if what supports the freeway today since two years is blue, uh, like, like the skies, it's for a reason. So just remember what just happened in Maui, okay? Just pay attention. Be aware, please, and protect yourself. I will do my best to limit the damage, but look. Okay. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi. Yes, we'll come, we'll come get that from you. Okay, hello, my name's Leah McKeever. I live in D6. Um, dear Board of Supervisors, or at least the ones that are still present, I have given you a collage of thoughts and reasons to not silently condone this transphobia, hate-fueled, fake feminist convention that's happening uh, Friday through Sunday this week. Do not condemn the Women's Declaration International Convention by any means possible as a failure of allyship to trans people. I'm speaking to every single supervisor, at least the one that thought worth it to stay, uh, because at the end of the day, until your term is up, you are government representatives. 
I am pushing you to accelerate your professed commitment to protect trans kids and adults. You all said you wanted to earlier this year. And I'm holding you accountable to this resolution you passed in April. Did you read it? I'm telling you this convention is dangerous to trans people's continued existence. Even if all it does is spread more propaganda and making more women think trans people are a danger to their existence as women, this is a hate that does not easily go away. By God, we haven't even figured out how to stop the whole Nazi thing that started over 80 years ago. Allowing this group of trans-exclusive radical feminists, or TERFs, as they call themselves, uh, to do that here in San Francisco is an utter and complete failure to value our lives as trans people as equally as cis people's lives. Silence is compliance. I will not comply. I think y'all know that by now. I'm bracing myself, hoping you won't either, as Friday draws nearer. Trans women are of no danger to you as a woman, rather the opposite. Trans women can help you help liberate you from the patriarchy, which is also oppressive to men, by the way, just differently. Um, and then I hope at least the women read the notes, men would be helpful too, of things that I have learned from my trans partner um, about genders in society and how men treat women, etc. I hope you do read it. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, motherfuckers. My name is Jordan. My pronouns are she, her, they, them, and I have a lot of shit to talk about. One, I support item 25 on overdose awareness. I am a cocaine user and a permanent support of housing tenant and activist. And if you don't like it, well, most of the raging coke parties in the city happen in wealthy areas, in mansions and luxury condos in Step On Me and Dorsey's district. Yet you want to paint shame poor people for doing drugs? Fuck for sobriety on poor people. On item 31, PSH. I'm wary of housing more homeless people in shit shack SROs run by crooked contractors. Three, as Fleet Week is coming up, I want to say fuck the Blue Angels and their imperialist, noisy, environmental polluting, public safety compromising bullshit. I wish this board would be like Chris Daly and stand up to the assholes at the Navy League. The main issue I'm here, and Leah touched on this perfectly, is that there's a so-called women's rights conference conference and protests happening this weekend at the Hilton on 750 Kearney in present Peskin's district. However, these people are TERFs or trans-exclusive radical feminists who dress their transphobia up in so-called women's rights and women's safety. There are going to be protests from the community, but it's time for the members of this board to condemn this toxic ideology, which, by the way, could definitely seep into uh, this city, a liberal city like San Francisco, and reaffirm their commitment to trans protections. It would be powerful if the three female soups, Ronan, Chan, and Melger, who for better or for worse have been champions for all women's rights, both cis and trans, could lead this. Transphobia is still an issue. In this week's communication boiler, at the end of the agenda, there is an email with transphobic slurs written about me and others by some man-child from Skag County, Washington, and a cringy love letter to D2 supervisor. Does the D2 supervisor condemn this transphobia? I yield my time. Fuck you. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon. I'm Chris Ward-Klein, and that is spelled K-L-I-N-E. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Last week, I came to this, this meeting and listened to each of you talk about your concerns with overdoses. Some of you mentioned your lack of public health experience or knowledge. Over the last several years, I took extra public health collegiate classes to have a better understanding of their functions. About 90 days ago, I spoke here concerning crisis mode for San Francisco and a few, as I call, running with the devil. 
I start, stated then that we didn't have 90 days to act, our critical infrastructure would start to collapse. Overdose, overdose numbers for August are due out any day, and we are expected to be on pace for 810 plus overdoses in San Francisco for the year 2023. In January 2023, San Francisco recorded 75.5 deaths per 100,000 citizens, placing it as seventh worst in counties over 500,000 citizens. I wanted to talk about checks and balances with police powers in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. This is the Commerce Clause for Public Health. Every overdose shall be investigated by public health. This is the top of the medical on top of the medical examiner's examination, and this inf information shall be turned over to other public agencies for resolution. If the sheriff illegally uses surveillance that contributes to overdoses, it shall be referred to Internal Affairs. If the police illegally use surveillance, digital surveillance, it shall be referred to the Internal Affairs and the Police Commission. If politicians and civilians are using surveillance illegally, it shall be referred to the district attorney. The concern here is that you have people in this city using surveillance to cheat at softball and billiards instead of focusing on public health and public safety. That is absurd, and every single one of you should be concerned about that and investigate that. Thank you for the time. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Can I put this under to a show? Yes. Okay. Hello, my name is Rex Ridgeway, and I'm here to talk about eighth grade uh, algebra again. This book is called A Guide to Detracting Math Courses. If you notice the four authors of this book, two of the authors of this book right now today works in the math department of our school district. The one from the bottom, the longest name, she runs the math department at San Francisco Unified. Detracting is when you keep kids from advancing. Detracting is when you, a, a, a kid who can do math and deserves more challenging courses or advanced courses, they're not allowed. So how do we have a school district where yesterday Mark Benemoff said he's going to give $11 million to, for AI. You can't get the calculus in our school district. And we have the head of the math department writes a book called Detracting Math Courses. When you track kids, you identify those kids who can move faster or get more rigorous education. When you detract, you keep them all in lockstep, no matter what. And that's why I took pains, and many parents in this district took pains to, to work around this nonsense. In my case, I had my granddaughter double up in math in ninth grade took Algebra 2 in 10th grade, took a UC Berkeley course in the summer and taking calculus in the 11th grade. Please continue to put, uh, go forth or whatever how it's called to a resolution to put Algebra 1 back in the 8th grade. This is a canary. It symbolizes the fact that the district is a coal mine. People are running out of it. And when this canary metaphorically dies, Everybody is going to leave this school district because of this nonsense. We need to put Algebra 1 back in the eighth grade. Please, thank, thank you, you so much for your time. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. 
Good afternoon. My name is Jay Connor B. Ortega, and I'm a co-president of Iconic D3 in District 3. I firstly want to start off by saying thank you, Mayor Breed, for the updates of all the progress we're making. But recently, I've had the pleasure to meet so many incredible San Franciscans in all 11 districts. And because they can't come here today since they work a 9-to-5 job, I bring their message to you, and it is as follows. We, San Francisco, are tired of having millionaire supervisors who live in fancy neighborhoods try to dictate to us, the actual working class, how to be good citizens. We have had enough of our city being systematically destroyed by national socialists and their band of lunatics who scream into this microphone demanding we accept their subjugation of our home to an ideology they can't constantly keep following themselves. We are done with the worst people trying to tell the rest of us how to be compassionate, good human beings. We, the people of the city of San Francisco, will no longer allow the policymakers in this chamber go unchallenged. So often, elected officials speak on behalf of a city that neither asked nor approves of their messages. We fired three school board members and a DA. We can always fire supervisors, mayors, and judges if we need to. A good friend of mine, Erica Sandberg, always says, Viva la San Francisco. And supervisor, the tide is turning against your policies because you chose ideology over intelligence. You have failed the good people of both District 9 and the city of San Francisco. And if that makes you too sad to do your job, then resign and allow our mayor to pick someone who can bring safety to your district. Supervisors, mayor, and all, you better get used to seeing my face and hearing my voice because I'm not giving up on this city. As a 20-year former homeless person, I started with nothing, but will fight for what I have now. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Lydia Branston, and I count myself among the worst people. Um, I just wanted to say before I, before I give public comment that coming here today, like every time I come to City Hall, I have to walk through weddings beautiful celebratory weddings of people sharing love, coming together in unity to support each other into the future. Harm reduction and the work we do every day is in line with that kind of philosophy, coming together with love to support each other through thick and thin. These are difficult times. I'm here today to ask you to support this Overdose Awareness Day resolution. If we cannot recognize the people that we are losing every day and say that we are going to support them with all of the tools in the box, including harm reduction, overdose prevention sites, wellness centers, abstinence-based programs, medically-assisted programs, we don't need one solution. We need all of the solutions. Thank you so much. I appreciate your listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for your comments. Next speaker, please. Good afternoon, supervisors. Um, I can hardly top that. Uh, but I'm Sarah Short. <laughs> I might as well bring up Falcor here. Most of you know him. Um, and uh, I'm here with the Treatment on Demand Coalition. He's also sorry for his outburst earlier. Um, 
And uh, piggybacking on what Lydia just said, uh, we're also here to uh, just greatly appreciate um, the support for Overdose Awareness Day. Uh, I assume uh, you'll all be supporting uh, the resolution coming up. Um, and uh, it's just so very important that we have unity from uh, the corridors of power here saying that uh, the tremendous number of overdoses we have, particularly this year, that's only increasing, uh, must stop and that we care about our residents, whether they use drugs or not, uh, and that we believe all life is valuable here and uh, that we support the tools that will help us get to the point of actually making a dent in, in those numbers to not only stop the uh, increase, but to hopefully reduce the actual numbers of overdoses and reduce deaths and um, get people well. Um, and so uh, thank you for recognizing the urgency of the crisis uh, and also um, looking towards the things that we know will help, such as the wellness hubs, uh, such as getting people uh, access to treatment, um, such as the safe consumption sites, which without wellness hubs, we will never get to. Um, so let's do it. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah Short, for your comments. Any other members of the public in the chamber here today like to provide general public comment? All right, seeing none, we're gonna head over to the remote call-in system. Mr. Lamb, do we have a caller in? I see we have one caller. There are three who are listening. If you're one of the three and you'd like to provide comment this afternoon, uh, please press star three now. Otherwise, we'll take this group to the end. First caller, please. Welcome. Thank you, Cork Ann. Thank you, Cork Angela. As always, you're awesome. Uh, Joe Kunzler here, obviously. Um, I listened to the public comment and um, I want to be very careful how I say this. I actually use shorthand for transgender, and I didn't know it was a slur, and I apologize about, you know, to everyone not named Jordan Davis, and I think you all know why. That's asterisk. Something about going after the supervisor who went after the NRA, the supervisor who, instead of wasting her time on Twitter, spends her time writing legislation about how to get nonprofits easier regulatory compliance. Obviously, I support this. Um, I, I've worked with nonprofits in my 41 years, and regulatory burdens are a huge problem, and also support that public trust in government. Um, finally, speaking of public trust in government, because I know all of you are very busy and have families at home, I would really appreciate it if you had a code of conduct and made clear that there's to be no more profanity in this chamber or any other chamber because no one should be spoken to in an undignified manner. You are all giving a lot of yourselves to serve the public, time away from your families, your friends, your hobbies. And I think that someone should be mature enough to say that. And thank you for your ongoing public service. Thanks, I'm, I'm done. Thanks for your comments, Joe. Do we have another caller in the queue, please? Madam Clerk, that was the last caller in the queue. Okay, great. Thank you. Mr. President. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment is closed. Let's go to the adoption without committee reference calendar. Yes, items 25 through 32 
were introduced for adoption without reference to committee. A unanimous vote is required for resolutions on first reading today. Alternately, a supervisor may require a resolution on first reading to go to committee. Madam Clerk, let's sever items 25 and 30. Supervisor Ronan. Sever 25, thanks. Supervisor Preston. 31, please. Supervisor Dorsey. Okay, on the balance of the calendar, items 26, 27, 28, 29, and 32, I think we can take those same house, same call. Those resolutions are adopted. Madam Clerk, can you please read item 25? Item 25, this is a resolution to recognize August 31st, 2023 as an International Overdose Awareness Day in the city and county of San Francisco. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you, colleagues. Um, I have passed out amendments to this ordinance and I want, or to this resolution, and I uh, want to give a special thanks to Supervisor and Guardio for working with me on these um, amendments. I also want to thank uh, Supervisor Stephanie Safai and Mandelman for discussing um, amendments with me. Um, I, this was never meant to be about uh, the strategy of arresting users. Um, that's something that we don't have unanimity about, and that's not what this resolution is about at all. What this resolution is about is recognizing this massive crisis uh, in our city um, and to commemorate a day which is now national, if not international in scope, unfortunately, Overdose Awareness Day. But a resolution is only meaningless if we're, is only meaningful if we're doing something about it. And so what I wanted to, in the current context of what's happening in the city, you know, put down here, is that we need this entire range of options in order to stem the amount of overdose we need detox centers, we need wellness centers, we need OPCs, we need uh, uh, um, abstinence programs, we need uh, you know, housing at all levels of the recovery process. Uh, we need case managers. I mean, the amount of things we need is, is very ample. And the most important point I wanna make about this, and you know, we talked about it last week, is no, no single individual is alike. You know, individuals are in all different places um, when using drugs. Uh, some are housed, some have family that are supportive, some um, have uh, jobs, others are homeless. Um, some have privilege, others have none. Uh, some are ready for an abstinence-based recovery program. Some are as far from that as you can get. And so the point of uh, having this full panoply of services available uh, is to make sure that we can help everyone at any stage of their drug use and hopefully path towards recovery because that's what we want for everybody. Um, the wellness centers are particularly important right now as they are under attack. Um, the, all of our city documents, all of our plans uh, include the wellness centers, um, as harm reduction centers, uh, as part of those plans. Um, they, th the reason for that is we have so many people in our city, most of them living on our streets and homeless, 
who have lost, you know, all sense of self, self-love, uh, reason to go on, really, uh, that they're not ready to jump into an abstinence-based recovery program. Sometimes they have to build the type of relationships with people that see them as full human beings and give them love, some self-respect back, and really hope that they can do this, that they can change their lives. Um, I wish we could open these wellness centers tomorrow. I wish we could open them tomorrow with OPCs. Um, and, you know, in some instances, we're going to be able to do that. In others, it might take a couple months for the OPC to come along with it. But what I can tell you is that we're not opening an OPC without first opening the wellness centers. And I explained that in detail last week. So in voting uh, for this resolution today, um, all you're basically saying is uh, we're recognizing this tragedy in our city. We're recognizing that it's getting worse not better and we have to doubly commit to what we've already committed to this is nothing new there's nothing new in here um and i i hope you will uh join me in supporting this resolution today thank you motion made by supervisor ronan to amend is there a second for that motion seconded by supervisor walton colleagues can we take that amendment without objection without objection the amendment passed supervisor dorsey to the item as amended thank you president peskin <clears throat> um, i want to express my appreciation to the author um, as well as to many of my colleagues who worked hard to forge a consensus resolution um, while i still object to three words in the resolution uh, which i'll explain i think this amended resolution um, now urges too much that's too important for too many lives um, to vote no um, simply because the resolution isn't as perfect as, as I would, would wish it to be. Um, I do want to restate my position, which, I th which remains unchanged, that I support supervised consumption services. Um, I still think opening wellness hubs, or what we're now calling wellness centers, without supervised consumption services as part of it, um, is a mistake. Um, and I want to be forthcoming about that. Um, but I think this resolution captures something that is important, and that is the importance of, cons of consensus and the multitude of things that we need to do. And I'm very um, in, in strong agreement about that we need, it needs to be an and, uh, the whole panoply of we are facing a crisis that is throwing the kitchen sink at us, and we need to throw the kitchen sink back. Um, I think we also agree that we should open three, at least three facilities simultaneously, and I think we all agree on that, uh, because it's unfair to do this to any single neighborhood or any single district, just one such center. Um, and to that point, I wanted to share a little background on just that will hopefully inform folks about my perspective on this. The residents of my district are frustrated and angry and too often frightened on the uh, daily reality of what they're seeing play out in the mid-market and Soma neighborhoods. Um, these are neighborhoods that absorbed a disproportionate share of shelter-in-place hotels uh, during COVID and that have seen a staggering uh, deterioration in street conditions. District 6 residents aren't alone in seeing many recent examples of our city government endeavoring to solve problems. Um, by creating or frustrating massive new problems um, that our residents are enduring and unhappy about. And that's why there is not a lot of trust for city government right now in District 6, and that mistrust, I think, extends to many of our nonprofit partners. 
within the span of just a few months, uh, we have seen a couple in my district, two permanent supportive housing projects that are being fast-tracked, and there's a lot of resistance to those. Just last month, I learned that the Department of Public Health is attempting to purchase a um, the Zendesk headquarters uh, on 1019 Market Street in my district to, no to locate a new mental health service center with transportation services. The way I learned about that, from a newspaper report. Um, the way my constituents who reached out to me about that learned about it was in a, from a newspaper report. Um, and I actually had to call one of the, uh, one of the more favorite uh, establishments in my neighborhood to apologize on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco that he find, found out that he might be losing his lease at the Chai Bar um, because he read it in a newspaper. That's how we all found out about this. So these come in addition to a proposed wellness hubs that in my view is something that is different than what I had originally signed up for. Um, I am representing a neighborhood that is drowning in what it sees as street level chaos driven by fentanyl addictions and there's disagreements sometimes on what we should do about it. Taken on their own, each of these projects has merit. Um, but I think our agencies and our nonprofit partners seem to be lacking coordination and consideration for the broader community impacts um, of continuing to that continue to cluster vital services in a neighborhood that's already extraordinarily challenged. Um, the residents I represent are no less compassionate or progressive um, as those in any other district here in the city of St. Francis. But the conditions they're experiencing every day, as the mayor talked about, um, are testing that compassion. Uh, as never before, and as a city, government and nonprofits um, that don't, that to them I think aren't taking their concerns as seriously as we should, I think we have to be sensitive to that. So against that backdrop, I took a position, um, and I, I will stick to the position that I support safe consumption sites. Again, as I said last week, that is something that I have supported for years, and because it fulfills the promise of what harm reduction should be addressing intrinsic and extrinsic harms um, for the individuals as well as to the community. This is something that has a value proposition to the neighborhood or should have a value proposition to the neighborhood to get public drug use off the street while also putting people, individuals, into a place where we can make a life-saving medical intervention if they, they experience an overdose from an opioid. Um, throughout my time here, you know, my understanding has been that wellness hubs were were equivalent to safe consumption sites. It came as a surprise to me, and that's why I felt that I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a hard time supporting that. I'm still gonna fight to, that wellness hubs should include safe consumption sites. Um, but continuing my discussions with DPH more recently, um, I'm gonna say I remain doubtful um, that whether safe consumption will ever be included in a wellness center. Um, or whether the only wellness hub in the, center, in the city will be the one that's on 6th Street, four blocks away from another one in my district that's providing very similar services, if not the identical services. So I also want to express my gratitude to the advocates who I've met with and many who, whom I've known over the, for many years um, to connect on this. I appreciate the importance of the wraparound services and the continuum of care. Um, Again, the wellness hub concept, concept I signed on to um, that would keep supervised consumption at its core um, is something that I'll support. 
That's my understanding of the New York model. That's what I am aware that other cities do around the world. I'm not aware of a supervised consumption facility that has done it in an incremental manner, but I, I remain interested to see examples of it. Um, so to that end, I want to take a moment to honestly and genuinely acknowledge the many years of hard work and advocacy my colleague from District 9, Supervisor Ronan, has dedicated to this issue. I want to express my gratitude to her for her willingness to educate me and bring me on the trip to New York so that we could visit On Point NYC um, and I could learn about other successful model models in other cities. I actually think our disagreement on this is relatively minor, especially in the context of the grand scheme of everything that we need to do as a city to address a record-shattering crisis in drug overdose deaths and related harms. Um, I want to do everything we can um, through safe consumption sites and other programs to save lives and fulfill the promise of recovery that can also change lives. Thank you. Supervisor Preston. Thank you, President Peskin. I, I wasn't going to weigh in, but uh, I will briefly. Um, and, and let me just uh, thank you, Supervisor Ronan, for your leadership on this. And thank you to, to everyone involved in crafting the amendments, which, uh, which look great and I think convey uh, something that everyone can, can agree on. And I appreciate the inclusion of the broad range of strategies, including overdose prevention sites uh, in the resolution. Um, I wish I shared the optimism that, that the position um, Supervisor Dorsey's position and Supervisor Ronan's were, were close and not that far apart. It's not what I'm, what I'm hearing, and I hope we can all get back to where we're, we're all together. Uh, but I just want to be clear. Like, I, I don't think we can gloss over what's a pretty significant difference. I think it's something you addressed last week. Um, but in my opinion, um, it doesn't, doesn't work to say you support supervised consumption. You don't support wellness hubs if they don't have supervised consumption at the t at a time when we know because of the governor's veto that there's significant legal impediments that the mayor in fact is relying on in saying she's not so far not going to open these things or hasn't moved forward to open them because of those legal issues so it's one of these chicken eggs i mean the city's not going to directly fund a safe consumption site i mean some of us probably uh, wish the city would and would be willing to take some of the risks there but i don't think that's a consensus position and i don't think that's the mayor's position uh, and that probably wouldn't be the city attorney's position, right? So there's, there's a dispute on whether the city can go forward and open one of these sites or not. Uh, there's not a dispute, or there wasn't until recently, on whether the city could go forward and do a New York model where you open a wellness hub, and then it is up to the nonprofit running it whether they want to or not open up safe consumption services, which would not be funded by the city. That's where we are, you know? And, like, let's just be honest about that, and if we keep playing this, this game that we're, we're, we're only going to support a wellness hub that has safe consumption at a time when our legal ability to directly fund safe consumption is in dispute, then we're not going to have wellness hubs and we're not going to have safe consumption, right? And that's where we are, and that's why a year after the release of the overdose uh, prevention plan, we don't have wellness hubs. Um, the other thing I just briefly wanted to address, because it's come up last week, it comes up every time this is discussed, is I think we do a tremendous disservice with the changing political winds among some people on this issue, uh, or at least the pressures. Um, when we revise history 
in an inaccurate way. And I just want to say to colleagues and to other city leaders who are very quick now, almost as a mantra, to declare the Tenderloin Center the only safe consumption site we've had in this city a failure and to sort of in passing say uh, this was a failure. Let me just remind you as I look at my screen at the most recent article, the study shows the closed Tenderloin Center successfully reversed 100% of its overdoses. 100%. So, you know, we can argue about and, and we can discuss the efficacy and how it could have been done better. We could have had rollouts that weren't so secretive. We could have been much, made sure that site was a much better neighbor. I'm with you colleagues on that, right? I think we all are. But I think it's really important that at every opportunity, we make very, very clear that 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 center saved lives and overdoses fatalities have surged since that center closed. And there's no question that if we were to open one, two, three, or 10 of these tomorrow, that we would see overdose deaths decline. We would, we would save lives. And it's just, I think, unconscionable that we are not opening these sites. So I'm gonna say, as I do every time this issue comes up, when I have the mic to the Department of Public Health, I don't care what the Board of Supervisors says. I don't care what the mayor says. You have a public health crisis and you can save lives by issuing RFPs for the wellness hubs. Nothing stops you from doing that. No law, nothing. You can issue those tomorrow. If you're short-staffed and you can't write them, my office is happy to write them for you and send them over. Send out an RFP. If there's no one out there willing to open these sites, then you got your answer. The city attorney doesn't like it, they won't sign off on it. There's literally zero risk and zero excuse. So thank you, and again, I'm just speaking to the one thing where I've had some disagreements with some of the comments. There's a broad range of strategies in the resolution, uh, which I think is appropriate, and I'm uh, looking forward to voting for this. Thank you. Supervisor Mandelman. Thank you, President Peskin, and um, I uh, will only, I am, I am happy that there is a, consensus statement uh, in, in this resolution and in the same way that I supported the budget, I will support the resolution. Um, I, uh, I, I do think that there are tremendously different uh, views on this board as um, Supervisor Preston has said. I am someone who uh, does not want to see the linkage center replicated in any neighborhood in San Francisco. I think the fact that uh, overdoses are reversed in safer consumption facilities is not surprising. Um, that's why they exist. But I don't think that the fact that overdoses are uniformly and successfully reversed in overdose prevention facilities means that those, uh, that those facilities necessarily are lowering the overall level of overdose in a community. And my concern about San Francisco is that through many decades of well-meaning policy, we may have made ourselves a city that is a destination for folks to come to and die. Um, and I don't want to see that perpetuated, and I don't know that oversight overdose prevention sites have to be part of that, but it is a concern that this member of the Board of Supervisors has and uh, thinks about a lot. Thank you, Supervisor. Supervisor Ronan. Thank you. Let me just... I just don't think people are being fully honest here. And, and I think that when we're on track to lose 800 San Franciscans, that we deserve honesty. It's okay to disagree. Let's just be honest about it so that people know where you stand. And um, 
I want to start out for a minute talking about leadership. If anyone knows about abysmal street conditions, it's me. <laughs> Have you been to the mission lately? Because I work on abysmal street conditions every single day of my life. That's what dominates my job as a supervisor. It's, it's really sad because there's a lot of things I'd love to spend my energy on. Uh, failing public schools, um, poverty issues, uh, making sure that kids aren't hungry. I mean, so many things. But you know what I spend all my time on? Street conditions. And what I believe fully is that we can fix street conditions and save lives at the same time. And we can do that if we exert leadership and if we work hard. So I'm really excited because the mayor has given her uh, policy director, Andres Powers, uh, permission to partner with me. And the two of us are going to meet with city apartments involved in this. And we are going to present her with a realistic plan for opening three wellness centers at the same time in the three neighborhoods most impacted by uh, street drug use and overdose deaths. We are going to give her a plan that will allow the opening a la New York model, which our city attorney David Chu has already signed off with, as soon as their boards give them the go ahead. As I said before, one of those nonprofits can open that OPC on day one. The other two, it's probably going to take a few months. But all three of the nonprofits who are interested in operating these centers have been fighting to, over, to open overdose prevention centers for decades. Like this is not a new, this is not a new concept. And as a matter, as a matter of fact, just a year ago, September 12, 2023, on September 6, 2022, Supervisor Dorsey Mandelman and Stephanie introduced the San Francisco Recovers Plan. And in that plan, it said they want on-demand assessment for treatment for those seeking recovery from SUDs, substance use disorders, spanning the continuum of detoxification, rehabilitation with and without medication to harm reduction approaches. Um, that includes safer drug consumption, that allows life-saving interventions. Like the whole thing is replete with exactly what we wanna do with wellness centers, hopefully with OPCs attached. So this isn't new. I mean, this was their resolution a year ago. All we're doing today is affirming that on Overdose Prevention Day and affirming it after Supervisor Dorsey sent out a year later a, a similar press packet saying he doesn't support wellness centers. So let, let's, not, let's not pretend that, 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 that we're agreeing here. I'd rather have you vote no than pretend and feign that you agree with this and, and then when we're ready to open it say, no, 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 when I voted for that resolution, I said only if it has an OPC. Like, don't play these games. These are people's lives. It's, a, it's too cute by half. It really, really is. And it's gross. And so I am going, let me be clear what, what, what Andrews Powers and I are doing. We are creating a plan where we can open the three centers. And there has to be, there has to be pristine street conditions around these centers. 
You guys have heard me say this nonstop for homeless shelters, for navigation centers, for tiny homes. I'm not gonna take another thing in my district, because guess what, my constituents don't want horrible street conditions in front of those houses either. And I am saying we have to be able to do both. If we cannot do both, then vote us out because we don't deserve these jobs. We're gonna need to, co uh, to collaborate with the police and that's not something I've always been comfortable doing. It's something that I now believe we have to do in order to achieve the results of having overdose prevention sites with pristine conditions in front of them and around them. We cannot have people using drugs in front of these centers. We cannot have people loitering and waiting in lines in front. It's not fair to the neighborhoods. It's not fair. So, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll just end by saying this. Let's be honest about what we're doing. Let's not try to have it both ways. Let's not try to be smooth and dishonest. Let's not say one thing now that you're going to then oppose later. Be honest about where you're at and take your stand and make your point and vote what you believe. But this, I'm for overdose prevention centers, but not wellness centers, when you can't open the overdose prevention center without the wellness center, is just dishonest and it, and it doesn't help or, or do anything for anyone. And, and, and it's, it's really, really harmful to people that are losing their lives every single day. Um, so please vote no if you're not willing and ready to open a wellness center that will soon after have an overdose prevention component to it. And please, colleagues, let's take some leadership to do both, uh, because that's our job, and that's what we've been tasked with doing. And to just throw up our hands and say, street conditions are so bad, so we can't do anything. Let's just let 800 people a year die <clears throat> isn't enough. In fact, it's shameful. Uh, so vote what you really believe. I don't want your fake vote. I don't want your political vote. I want your honest to God vote. What do you think? Tell the people of San Francisco what you really, really, really believe and what you're really willing to do. Supervisor Dorsey, and keep it brief because we've spent more time on this okay. and God only knows why. Go ahead, Supervisor Dorsey. And, and I just want to say, you know, when 800 people are dying a year, I hope we're taking the time for this. Oh, I understand. I that. hope we're I, taking I, the time for this because less than 800 people died during the entire COVID. So if we have to have this conversation every week, we have to have this conversation every week. Go ahead, Supervisor Dorsey. So I appreciate, thank you, President Peskin, and thank you, Supervisor Ronan. I, I do want to, I'm, I'm grateful that you brought up San Francisco Recovers, which is a resolution, which was actually imagined as a consensus resolution. One of the things that San Francisco Recovers draws from is the experience of a multitude of European cities that have had success in reducing drug overdose deaths and a lot of the issues around open-air drug scenes and public drug dealing. One um, conclusion that every single city has, that has reached in this is that there is a point where consensus is more important than just it's my way or the highway. That's why I, I think this resolution was improved by adding the multitude of things that we need to, to do, um, if it's gonna come down to three words, I'm actually, if, in my view, I'm being honest about 
I'm going to continue to fight for wellness hubs that were what we, we originally defined wellness hubs as, which is this is something that has supervised consumption services. I would invite somebody to point out to cities or other uh, overdose prevention centers or supervised consumption sites where it necessarily has to proceed incrementally. Um, what, I, what I have a hard time justifying is that a service that is gonna provide acupuncture foot baths, napping spaces, fluff and fold laundry, harm reduction supplies, show me the evidence that that's working without supervised consumption. I believe that, that, that supervised consumption is the most important element of this. And I, think it sh I don't think, I worry that we're gonna be telling a city department to, that's, we've been talking about this for a dozen years and we haven't gotten off square one on, on safe consumption sites. I actually felt, at least, at least as recently as a month ago, that we were somewhat close. If we had a nonprofit partner that was willing to take the legal risks for it, um, that we could do this. We have the direction that we could do the New York model. And I think we could do that. Um, so what we're doing. <laughs> you have a piece of New York isn't, to my knowledge, New York did not have a services without supervised consumption. So I, I'm, I am consistent in my position on this. <laughs> You're laughable, that's what you are. And um, through the chair, Supervisor Dorsey, what are you doing to open supervised consumption sites right now? I, I met with one of the nonprofit partners. I offered to have, I would welcome the opportunity to have conversations with members of the board who were reluctant about the possible legal risks that we have talked about in closed session and also publicly. Um, it, if I could offer some perspective from the, somebody who worked in the city attorney's office for 14 years, I'm happy to do that. So you're, you're actively trying to open an uh, yeah. overdose prevention site in your district right now? I, I, Colleagues, this is a measure on the adoption without committee reference calendar. We can send it to committee and have this debate, but this is not really an appropriate form for a debate. We can do that in committee. We can do that at hearing, but the clerk is admonishing me as board president. So let's take the vote. There you go. On the item as amended, Madam Clerk, a roll call, please, on item number 25. 25 Thank as amended. you. Yes. Thank you, Mr. President. Supervisor Engardio. Aye. Engardio, aye. Supervisor Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Supervisor Melgar. On item 25 as amended, aye. Supervisor Peskin. Aye. Peskin, aye. Supervisor Preston. <laughs> Preston, aye. Supervisor Ronan. Ronan, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Supervisor Stephanie. Stephanie, I, Supervisor Walton. Aye. Walton, I, Supervisor Chan. Aye. Chan, I, and Supervisor Dorsey. Dorsey, I. There are 11 ayes. The resolution is adopted as amended. Madam Clerk, could you please read item number 30? Item 30, this resolution approves for the Recreation and Park Department's general manager an emergency declaration for the Portsmouth Square elevators modernization uh, estimated cost to not to exceed 2.2 million. I need a motion to send that to committee to budget and finance made by Supervisor Safai, second by Supervisor Chan. Without objection, the item is referred to committee. Item 31, please. Item 31, this is a resolution to urge the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to fill at least half of the vacant permanent supportive housing units within 90 days and to maintain a vacancy rate no greater than 5% thereafter. Supervisor Preston. 
Thank you, President Peskin. And colleagues, last week I introduced this resolution. I wanted to give a, a quick update uh, before we vote on it and wanted to thank some of the additional co-sponsors we got. Thank you, President Peskin, Supervisors Chan, Walton, Melgar, and Ronan for their co-sponsorship. Uh, co and anyone else who wants to join on, uh, the resolution urges Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing to fill at least half of the vacant permanent supportive housing units in their portfolio within 90 days and to maintain a vacancy rate that does not exceed 5% going forward. Um, colleagues, I am uh, really encouraged by the response to our resolution so far just uh, in this last week, and I'm hopeful that the board weighing in here will add uh, to the urgency to fill these units. Um, last week, a couple days after we introduced this, HSH announced publicly for the first time its intent to scale up uh, a recently unannounced uh, pilot program that allows, in some situations, same-day placement uh, for unhoused folks uh, from the street into supportive housing. Uh, this is a sharp contrast to the current average of 150 days that it takes uh, to, on average, to place folks into uh, permanent supportive housing. So this is a very positive development, and I'm optimistic about it. Uh, I want to thank HSAH staff for their spirit of collaboration on this. Um, since we introduced uh, the resolution, we've been in close communication, and I, I believe they're genuinely committed uh, to addressing the longstanding problem of uh, supportive housing vacancies. And with increased capacity, thanks to new staffing, and they've filled some positions, HSH appears to be in a stronger position to deliver on this goal. So uh, I'm looking forward to continuing to work with uh, Director McSpadden and her team to make progress, uh, as urged in this resolution, to move people into vacant supportive housing units uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, we've also been in contact both before introducing the resolution and after with uh, supportive housing providers who are ready and willing to take in new residents on an expedited basis. So bottom line, uh, encouraged by the progress over the last week, I appreciate your support, colleagues, and want to make sure that we continue this momentum uh, by passing the resolution today. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, President Peskin, and I want to thank Supervisor Preston for this resolution. I'm happy to add my name as a co-sponsor as well. And I, uh, I agree with you that uh, that the vacant permanent supportive housing units must be filled as soon as possible to help individuals stabilize from life on the streets. And in the, doing the work I've been doing around um, nonprofit legislation I introduced today, I've met with so many nonprofit housing providers who have talked about this issue with me in terms of um, their bottom line is affected when we're not filling the vacant units. And there, I was going to follow up uh, with a letter of inquiry to the um, HSH department, but I would love to collaborate with you on some of the questions that I've um, that I have around the contracts. Um, I won't go into them now because we've um, been talking a lot about other things. But um, I would definitely uh, this is something that I care deeply about, and from the nonprofit provider perspective, with some of the master leases, I think um, we really need to understand why um, these units continue to be vacant and to really get at the issue. So I would like to work with you on that. So. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Your co-sponsorship will be noted. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, uh, Madam Clerk. Please add me as a co-sponsor. Yes. Appreciate uh, Supervisor Preston for putting this uh, forward. Um, it's one of the reasons why we did Proposition C, to bring more light and attention and bring more oversight and accountability to this department. So really appreciate you pushing this forward. Um, this is something that we've heard about a number of times in our budget committee 
over the course of the last year about not just uh, shelter space and permanent supportive housing, um, but overall the housing stock. So getting to the bottom of it, understanding why, uh, but at the same time ensuring that there's accountability that the department delivers on while people are on the streets, thousands of units sit vacant. So appreciate that. Happy to be a co-sponsor. Thank you. It shall be noted on the item with its additional co-sponsors, seeing no other names on the roster, same house, same call. The resolution is adopted. Madam Clerk, would you please read the in memoria? Yes, today's meeting will be adjourned in memory of the following beloved individuals on behalf of Supervisor Peskin for the late Mr. Peter DeLuca and on behalf of Supervisor Chan for the late Mr. James Chow. We are adjourned. <laughs>